What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only Leo Sayer. Leo, good to have you on the program. Nice to be here, Bob. You're in Australia. Why Australia? Oh, good question. Well, after I made my first record and uh, Silverbird, my first album in 1974, uh, I went straight to America on tour. Um, because things were happening and a lot, lot of interest in America. And, you know, we signed up with Warner Brothers uh, for the USA and Canada at that time and South America, I guess. And um, uh, the rest of the world was Chrysalis Records in England. Um, and after the American tour, which went fantastic, um, it was just a huge success. Uh, there was a call for me to come to Australia. So I came down to Australia, and when I came, it was by this time 1975, and a buzz had already really started. So I arrived in, in Melbourne, I think it was. I arrived in Melbourne to absolute, well, it was like Beatlemania. You know, the airport was jammed with people. There were people waving at the plane as we came in from the observation deck of the airport, and journalists were immediately, you know, beseeching me and I had lots of stupid questions asked at the airport, you know, like, why did you come to Australia? <laughs> you know, what do you, or even what do you think of Australia? Well, he hasn't even got here yet, you know. So <laughs> it was crazy. And, but this tour was just amazing. And I fell in love with the place. And we had a, a sponsor, uh, a wonderful guy called Reg Anset, who ran an airline, which is now defunct, called Anset Airlines. And Bob had his own private plane. So he said to me, um, do you want to, what, what places would you like to go to in Australia? Because we'd had an incredibly successful tour, sold out everywhere. So he wanted to give me a gift. And he just said, look, I'll fly you to six places. You choose. Just put a bid on the map and we can get there. There's, air, there's airfields everywhere. So 
Yeah, I went to the famous Ayers Rock, you know, which is now Uluru, Uluru, as, as it's called, the area, Ulara. Um, and we went to Northern Cairns and we went to Broome where they shot the, you know, Chariots of Fire movie and you see those guys, you know, the endless sands. That's that's this incredible place. And we went down to Tasmania. We We flew to all these places. And I made myself a vow that one day I was going to come and live in Australia. I don't know why I made it. It was just an instinctive thought. But when you see the beauty of this place and you feel the space and you feel the, uh, you know, you can be lonely here and yet happy. How can I describe that? It's, 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 it's solitude that you can reach in this place. Um, and and a, a little bit less BS than, than the rest of the world, you know, a little bit less hype. So I kind of, over the years, I started coming back and coming back and coming back. And when I finally moved in here in 2005 with my lovely partner, Donatella, who was also man, my manager at the time as well. Um, when we moved in, they asked me, how many times you've been to Australia then? You know, this is the immigration standard question. I said 45, which was the absolute God's truth. Wow. You know, so, so hey, it's my, it was my second home, home you know. But, but let me say as well, I've always loved working in exile. I mean, when I lived in, uh, when I lived in the States, in in California and in briefly in New York, uh, made all those albums during the seventies. You know, I felt really good at being away from home. My father was a merchant seaman, so basically he sailed around the world as a ship's engineer, and I suppose I followed in his footsteps. I always loved traveling, and I I love being away from home. It it pushed me more, you know, and I think being here it pushes me to prove myself all the time. Even though I'm 74 in May, I still feel I've got a lot to prove. Okay, I've been to Australia a couple of times. I know most of the people in the industry there, mm. and they talk about how far it is from everything. They are thrilled when you actually go there, kind of like what you're saying your first time in 1975. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But they also talk about the distance. It's certainly well known in terms of bands. Australia has the best live bands because they're limited number of markets. They have to mm. play all all this time, but do you feel somewhat disconnected from the business, from the news, from anything? No, no, not at all. And I think that, you know, I mean, look, at here we are talking on Zoom and um, we're able to, you know, reach the world from wherever we are. I mean, I follow Formula One, you know, Grand Prix racing. Right. And most of the journalists who work on that, um, the, that business was always centered around England, around Britain rather like my version of the music business was always centered around Britain. You know, it had to be Britain first. That was the where, you know, you got the best equipment for the studio and that was where you kind of, that was where you worked. If that was your, that was your field, your place. Now, all these guys in Formula One, they all live in Spain. They all live in Italy. They all live in Germany because they don't need to be in, in Britain to do their work. So just like that, I mean, I think, I've talked to a few rock journalists who live in the Demonic, De American rock journalists who live in Dominican Republic or, or Mexico, you know, or Canada, because we now have linked the world by technology. So I, I, I think you don't. I, and I think, you know, if you if you follow uh, some of the, 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 the news media uh, to find out about what's happening in the business, like. This morning I was looking at Mix Magazine and, you know, their, their blog and finding out about some new studio gear that I'm interested in. 
and and I feel like uh, yeah, at that moment I'm reading Mix magazine. I'm I'm in California, you know. So so I I think the world has got small and got closer. Air travel is easier as well, you know. I mean, COVID's put a spike into a lot of what we do. Uh, traveling wise and international wise but i think that um i don't feel disconnected and i wake up every morning feeling at home you know let's stop at formula one they were just in melbourne did you go no 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 i'm i'm a bit off it at the moment although i've i talked to about six different friends who were down there you know so i get the inside track you know <laughs> so so uh uh yeah and I, I over the years i've just become a little bit less of a racing guy and a little bit more of a more of a chronicler and um i mean i'm writing my book at the moment bob so i'm 1400 words into the book and i'm chasing my chronicling my life and uh i've got a vast amount of material here i'm working on every day research you know research 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 find out what i was doing on june the 11th 19 1984 you know um you got a couple of things here let me ask yeah George Harrison was famously into Formula One. He was a good friend. You were into Formula One, right? What was the appeal back then? I, I think that we all grew up, you know, look, boys grow up to either want to be racing drivers or fighter pilots. <laughs> it's the fantasy when you're at school. Maybe soccer players or American football players or baseball players or tennis players. But mostly, I think boys, you know, like that daredevil sport, you know, that... that um that devil may care kind of dangerous thing that you do, you know? So I grew up with motor racing. I used to follow Phil Hill and Sterling Moss. My father raced motorcycles. So, you know, just as a spare time kind of thing until his mum, until my mum stopped him because it was too dangerous. Um, and I remember him taking me to the Goodwood race course, which is very famous now for historic events. Um, and we went there and Sterling Moss crashed in right in front of us. And it, it was a crash that nearly finished his career. And I, I, it was just one of those moments when I just thought that the smell of the petrol, the, you know, the whole kind of screeching of tires, the whole dangerous excitement of it, I just found very compelling. And, you know, the most beautiful part of that story is that Sterling Moss became a friend may, many years later. Because I met him through, you know, Formula One. Of course, now he knows I'm Leo Sayer, not Jerry Sayer any longer. Um, and and we became pals. And I used to go to dinner with him all the time. So isn't it incredible that you you meet your heroes and they become your friends? Okay, staying with Formula One just for another second. Yeah. Why are you off it now? And what do you think of the Netflix series if you've seen it? Uh, can I say the word crap? <laughs> absolutely you can use yeah. shit if you want to it's fucking crap no um i just think it's all become a little bit las vegas you know um of course the americans uh, group you know big group have taken it over and of course they want you know you know lots of lots of bodies at the track and they want to appeal to young kids and girls and all of this stuff but it's not as pure as it used to be and the rules are starting to get fudged around to kind of make the best, uh, you know, the best result. And Netflix, the series, um, although it's very well done, of course, you can't say it's not. Um, it tends to kind of bring up kind of, you know, it makes it makes stories that aren't really true. You know, uh, I don't know, fictionalizes it and, and sort of dramatizes it. 
And I, th I, I think over-dramatisation, life's exciting enough, isn't it, Bob? <laughs> you know, do we need to have a dramatist kind of re-script everything? I mean, it's, it's a little bit like when you watch a biopic movie. I can't watch the Queen movie or the Rod Stewart movie or, or whatever, whatever they are, you know. I just can't watch them because, you know, they're just kind of, you know, enhancing all the details to to cry and, try and create something that somebody who's just not interested in the subject of, say, Jim Morrison will be a attracted to. But, I mean, anybody following the life of Jim Morrison, boy, that's exciting enough as it is. You know, I mean... I agree totally. Let me just ask you one... Why dramatize Janis Joplin when Janis exactly. Joplin was Janis Joplin, man? <laughs> well, that's one of the things that we've lost, of course. When you went to go see these acts before YouTube, etc., and you experienced it live, it was something transcendent yeah. that could yeah. not be replicated today. Just the final <laughs> note on Formula One. Yeah. I got into it, but the final result last year with Verstappen taking over Hamilton in, in the rules, I mean, no, it was dreadful. Well, that's that's what's kind of that's what's led me to this position. I mean, uh, I gotta say, I mean, it's really a shame when you get your best protagonist a bit, little, a bit like you know, um, some fighter coming in in Muhammad Ali's prime and uh, with four hands, you know, and <laughs> you know, four arms, and they let him box, and he beats Ali, of course, because he's got four arms. Um, and are you going to call that legitimate? You know, it's the same thing, really. I mean, it's just, I think it's kind of cheating, personally. I think that guy had that w race won. he driven brilliantly. His story is the story of the greatest of all time. And uh, I'm going to be controversial here, and I'm saying, is it because he's black? I don't know. I, I mean, you know, it's a, really, it's a really difficult one to get into. But they wanted the young Verstappen to win. They got Verstappen. I mean, the first thing he did was put number one on his car, which I think is kind of gratuitous, you know, to say the least, because they all have their numbers and their logos going with that. And, of course, you've got the right, if you win the championship, to put number one on your on your team, but uh, on your car. But, I mean, mostly those drivers, uh, they don't race on those kind of ego principles. And and here you've got an ego guy. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. The best news of all, with, to close on Formula One, is the Ferrari now look like they're, they're wrapping it up. So right. that's fantastic that the oldest team, the most traditional team, um, with two young, wonderful young drivers, um, is, is doing what it says on the packet. And I think that's beautiful. If the red car wins, I'll be very happy. Okay, let's go back to what you said, being in exile. Mm. Now, let's just talk about recording music. So do you find it's easier to do in isolation in exile? Yeah, well, I, I, I've developed a way of making records completely by myself. And um, I'm very proud of it. I, I, I'm, um, it's taken me a while to get there. But, you know, if I go back, I started as all I wanted to be was a painter, an artist. I was into, you know, people as various as, as, as Marcel Duchamp and... <laughs> Mark Rothko and 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 Henri Russo and and Van Gogh, but I mean, I wanted to be a painter. I at school, I was great at art. That was my great ability. I was a dyslexic kid, so I leaned towards the creative side because I was no good at the practical. My father was an engineer. He was ashamed of me because I couldn't add, uh, put two and two together. And I mean, until I was nineteen, I couldn't even tie my shoelaces. I didn't know what left and right were. 
Could you really not tie your shoelaces? I really couldn't. I really couldn't. I was, I was, you know, I'd, I'd balk at anything technical like that because the laces would go in different positions. So my brain told me, you know, left and right position, all this stuff. I mean, I still can't play drums. Um, I, I, I can't coordinate one hand and the other. So going, you know, having those disabilities leads to incredible mind and creative dis- uh, abilities, you know. So I could imagine things. I could, I could see things. I could work out perspective and distance in my head. So I was born to be an artist. Now, I, I went to art school. Um, my parents, you know, argued with the, the art school uh, uh, bursars when we got in, you know. So to say, he, I, he said, I don't want him being a bohemian. Get him a job in commercial art. So, you know, I went into a commercial art course, you know, to, to do that, which was very frustrating. But I would bunk off all the time and go to the life drawing uh, classes and go to the art classes and hang out with all the fine artists, you know. So I was already a rebel in that time. But I don't know. I I just had this creative brain. I've always had that. And that, that I mean, I could sing. I sang in the church choir. I had a wonderful priest who taught me to sing. So I always had that in the background. And apparently I have perfect pitch. So, you know, that gave me the gift of always being able to know what note I was singing and tune into the sound of birds or whatever in the background, you know. So I could find those things. So when I actually got to the studio and started working, of course, nobody would let me near the control desk and they just put me on the microphone. But I mean, they were amazed that I could walk, I could go out, have a sandwich and come back and sing in exactly the same key as I'd left the room (laughs) singing in, you know. So I had those gifts, I had those abilities, and I I was a quick learner, a good observer as well. So all the years that, um, say from 74, 73, maybe 72, all the way until 1980, um, I was working with other writers and other producers and learning their craft by just observing them. So now I've got to this finite point where I can do the lot myself. And um, so I believe, going back to the art theory, that if Van Gogh and Picasso and all those guys didn't need somebody in the room to do the blues and the reds for them, why can't I do the lot? If I call myself an artist, I should be able to make the whole thing. So I should be able to learn the technology to make it slave to me. Absolutely. So, you know, based on our discussions and preparations, it seems like you're very technologically savvy. Intuitively so, I think. I think it's an intuitive thing, you know, that I, it, honestly, I read manuals and I don't know what the hell I'm reading. And sometimes uh, my engineer, live engineer, Damien Young, great guy in, in Melbourne, sometimes has to do a screen time thing with me, you know, with Team Viewer and come onto the screen and sort out what I can't do. Oh, no, Leo, you do it like this. Oh, and I'm going, oh, my God, what a klutz. <laughs> but but we get there, you know, because I'm determined, I'm, my determination. And I can't believe I'm 74 in May and I'm still this ambitious, determined guy who's got to prove all these things to himself. But that's how I am. That's how I'm built. Okay, so how much equipment do you have in the studio? How professional is it? It's pretty pro. I mean, I work with uh, a Mac computer, which is kind of highly boosted. I've got a whole server system in here, about 21 terabytes of memory. And um, it's a whole radio system with backups. 
if the power goes off here, which it often does because we're in the country, um, I've got a 24-hour backup, so everything just clicks in and works. I've got accelerated internet as well, which which helps me stay on touch with it all. Uh, I have an SSL desk, some beautiful mics. I've got a new mic by a guy called Loughton, who's built this incredible mic, which uh, David Crosby as well uses. And Dave Crosby's engineer was a, a guy that I knew, so I quizzed him about mics, and he said, throw out your, Neum- throw out your Neumanns, get this one. So I've got this amazing mic that uh, just makes my voice sound really sweet. I've built a booth in my studio all on wheels where I sing in. So I have a big open space barn here. I'm speaking to you from one side of the barn. And um, I'd say it's about, yeah, a thousand square feet. And um, it's all open. Um, But I've got these things called clouds, which, um, uh, you know, basically give you acoustic treatment over where the monitors are and everything. I use Miller and Kreisel monitors. Uh, I use Crane Song, which is Dave Hill, who... created the summit brand and then crane song i use his mike pre's which are fantastic and um i've got a lot of expensive equipment um incredible electrostatic headphones and these these planar dan clark audio i'll give him a plug from california (laughs) and um you know i've got all the toys tina turner's old neumann microphone and um some beautiful akgs i've got all the toys and I can basically, you know, start a project by myself and not bother to call anybody, which is great. And that's what I love. Okay, so you have a new record, Northern Songs, which are covers of Beatle records. Did you play all the instruments, do everything yourself? Yeah, everything. So how did you do it? Uh, I mean, with the Beatles, I always imagined how I would treat those songs, being very cheeky, you know. So it's a kind of, it's an interpretation, first off. So, you know, when people hear it, they won't hear direct covers, you know, they'll hear um, Leo, Leo-fied versions, you know, so we've changed the beats and we've changed the feel and all sorts of things like that. So that's the first point. So I heard these songs in my head and I hear things in my head, sometimes from dreams as well. I write songs in dreams and then I just, I mean, I have a 24-7 studio here, let's say, because basically I've designed it so that if it's the winter, you can instantly turn the hits. It's hot here in five minutes. Big radiator, hydroponic system in here. Um, great air conditioning for the summer. So I'll get up in the middle of the night straight from a dream or straight from some imagination run and immediately come in and just start working on something. The fact that I'm not using another studio really helps because everything's ready to go all the time. So wherever you were last into a song, say working on the bass, Uh, If you leave it alone and you go away for a few hours, you can come back and just carry on. And I I just hear all the lines in my head. I can dissect uh, all the parts of a song in my memory and just work on them and put it all together. Um, I've just got this, found this ability, and I suppose the dyslexia has helped in a way because I'm able to kind of really dig into my imagination or my mind and and use that for all my work you know so i start with a basic template i'll put down a drum beat um a keyboard okay just to be clear you said earlier because you're dyslexic you couldn't play the drums so these are electronic drums you're putting on the record everything is played from a keyboard into the computer 
So every note, you know, relates to a keyboard. I don't really use pads. Some people use pads, you know, for drums and everything. I know I, I don't do that. And I tend to cut and paste a lot of stuff. So I tend to, I have a vast sampler library. You know, my, my, uh, my, my computer is relying on about eight terabytes of memory, uh, slaving to it from various things and um, from various other outboard uh, uh, memory uh, units, you know. So I've got all these samples and somehow my head always manages to find the right sounds and the right, um, the right grooves, as it were, you know, on the drums to, to give me the feel. So I'll use lots of different elements to get there. Sometimes some loops as well. So, I mean, Get Back on the record is just a drum loop that I found from some guys that I work with in Denmark and he gave me a, a CD of all his, his drums and bang, I'll put it all together from there. Um, just added some symbols in the right places, you know. But I just love that feeling of control, you know. You can do things yourself. It is possible. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Are you looking for the perfect move in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy. Enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Start off with the drums. Tell us how you built the track from there. Yeah, build the track. Um, basically, put down a keyboard. Uh, it's a, it's, it can be a tiresome process because you're writing the song at the same time. So, I'm, I'm writing uh, 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 lyrics at that moment, um, and, and you know, working on a, a, a vocal line. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it, it just, it, it just comes and. It comes fairly easily, I have to say. It's hard to describe a process. I'm supposed to do something soon for, I think it's Mix Magazine, actually, um, where they're going to look at my studio and the way that I work. And and they said they don't know anybody who works like me. I mean, maybe Todd Rundgren did when he was doing his a cappella record and a few things like that, but they don't know anybody. Stevie Wonder, of course, does everything himself, and Prince did as well. But, but at the same time, Prince would bring in musicians to work with and engineers he would always have around. I have nobody, so I think what I'm doing is pretty unique, you know. Okay, how about acoustic instruments? Do you play guitar? Do you play all these other instruments? No, no, but they're all available as samples now, you know. I mean, a wonderful program called Native Instruments, 
um, uh, just to name one of them, they can give you strummed guitars. So basically you can get a guitar which will go ding, 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 ding. Now, you might not like one of those beats, so immediately you go onto the screen and cut that up and then get it to work in the way that you want it to work. I mean, when I'm working, I often start off a song, I'll be completely in the wrong key, so I'll have to move everything. So it becomes an extraneous process, you know. Um, but that's that's okay. I mean, anything to get there. And I've got to tell you, I mean, Northern Songs is the second album that I've made like this. I made an album called Selfie. Um, and I called it Selfie because I was doing it all myself. Um, and I, uh, that came out um, uh, a couple of years ago or so. Um, and they can be a long process. I mean, I don't care how long it takes. The Beatles project started 10 years ago. So, um, and I have an engineer, an amazing engineer that I use for mixing. And, and also, you know, we, he, he does the mark mastering as well. Uh, he's called John Hudson and he used to be at Olympic studios. He ran Olympic studios, a very famous studio in London. And, uh, he's the guy who recorded the, all the Brian Adams songs, you know, um, he recorded Tina Turner. Uh, he recorded, uh, he's got Grammys for Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It, all those tracks. We Don't Need Another Hero. John is probably one of the best mixing engineers in the world. And uh, he started mixing me way back in 1982. Um, and, um, you know, when I was working with this guy, Alan Tarney, we did More Than I Can Say and right. Orchard Road and a few other songs. And um, John was the mixing engineer, and I always got on well with John. And one day... I, I moved in here, to, as I say, 2005, and in 2007, I get a call out of the blue. Hey, it's John. And I'm going, what? What are you doing? And I, I noticed it was an Australian number. And, of course, his wife is Australian. He said, well, I packed up the studio. I got out of there, got fed up with it. There were a few complications. I'm here in Australia. So I said, great. He said, look, I'm looking for a studio to work in. I said, well, I know there's a studio here called 301 Studios, which is linked with Abbey Road. It's EMI studio down here. It's quite beautifully equipped and everything. And John is the genius with SSL as well. You know, always has been one of the best uh, mixing engineers. I mean, uh, I mean, he did he did uh, the the, uh, the 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 Live Aid song, you know, and all of that stuff, you know. So he's he's the genius with SSL. So when I told them John Hudson was down, they said, "Oh, bring him down, bring him down." And they gave us a room in in there, and um, with we only had computers in there and a little mixing desk. But that's how the project started. Um, just literally, he was off the plane, bit of jet lag, and I played him these songs I was working on, these Beatles songs. I played him "Strawberry Fields Forever" um, and uh, "Norwegian Wood," Eleanor Rigby with the Michael Jackson kind of beat to it, and um, and he said, "Great, let's let's mix them." He mixed them straight away, and those are the mixes that are on the album. They're from 10 years ago. Okay, let's talk about the Beatles. When did you first hear the Beatles? I think uh, I think it was Love Me Do, which was the first really uh, real proper single that they made. And I was at school. I must have been about 15, 16, something like that. And this song came over, and I've got to say I thought it was pretty cool because um, – I like the way that the guy, uh, John Lennon, was um, – I'm just checking the time. I had 32 minutes. Um, I like the way that the guy in, in was playing harmonica because I was playing harmonica at the time and I was playing 
you know, I was just learning the harmonica and, and hey, this guy with the Beatles was playing the harmonica. That's pretty cool. So that's what made me listen to it. I mean, I was much more into Buddy Holly and, and Elvis and, and blues music, basically, and folk music, you know, Woody Guthrie and things like that. I hadn't quite discovered Bob Dylan yet, which was going to be the big one for me. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was intrigued. I, I loved Lonnie Donegan and, you know, and Skiffle and, and pure music, you know, Sonny Terry and Brandon McGee, all that stuff. And here comes this guy making this pop song, but he's playing a harmonica. So it's pretty cool. I think that was the first time I noticed them. So what was it like experiencing the Beatles in the UK? We know Ed Sullivan, Beatlemania in the United States. Yeah. What was it like in the UK? Well, I think that we were watching them develop. You know, and um, that was what's interesting because they were based here and you'd see them on the streets. I mean, I used to work in a design studio um, when I was about 18 and left art school. Um, and I was in a design studio in London and John Lennon used to visit Yoko Ono, who had a, an apartment on the top. That was when they were first dating. Um, well, she was in the apartment with her then boyfriend. So John would come and visit. Now, uh, the the uh, art gallery guy that Yoko was with didn't like anybody smoking upstairs. John smoked like a chimney. So he had to smoke down in the yard where I had to smoke as well because basically we had a lot of chemicals in the in the art room and, um, you know, we, we you couldn't smoke there. So I would go down to the backyard and there's this guy who always turned up with the white suit and I knew who he was. Um, but I couldn't really sort of say, hey, Mr. Lennon, I just couldn't bring myself to, oh, I'm a big fan. Yeah, you know, I couldn't bring myself to do that. So I just said, hello, mate. And uh, and he said, hello, mate, back, you know, and we shared ciggies together. And sometimes he'd roll a joint and we'd have a smoke a joint together. And, you know, we were smoking companions. And uh, it's really kind of funny because, you know, he, you know, he said, what's your name? I said, Jerry. And I said, yeah, what's yours? Oh, John, John. And he, I think he kind <laughs> of got a kick out of the fact that I wasn't John Lennoning him or Beatling him, you know. So uh, so we, we became, hey, how are you today? Yeah, good, mate. What, what you up to? Oh, I'm just visiting Yoko upstairs. You know, I'll, I'll be here for a few hours. Anyway, uh, you know, tell me what you're working on today. Oh, I'm doing a cover for um, this band, you know. And he said, yeah, he said, I know a bit about music, you know. <laughs> and we'd we'd play this kind of decoy game where, you know, we just wouldn't admit who he was, which was very cool. Years later, okay, spin years forward, I'm making my first album, Silverbird. Um, and Adam Faith, who's managing me and producing it with David Courtney, my co-writer uh, as well, uh, but co-producer with Adam, they decide that we've got to go to Apple Studios. I mean, Adam is a complete beat or nut, you know. So we've got to go to, uh, not Abbey Road, sorry, go to Savile Row, the Beatles, the Apple Studios, to master the record. And there's this great guy there called Porky Peckham, George Peckham, who's probably one of the great mastering engineers. He always used to, he's known as Porky, and he you'd always get his acetates back. I've got a couple of them. And he'd always scratch Porky into them. <sighs> You know, or else a pig sign. So that they, you know, they're very collectible items now. They go from thousands, hundreds of thousands. But anyway, um, we went down there to see uh, to see George, and you know, get on with the master, and you know, and I was allowed to come along that day to have a listen in. And I walk through the door, and this burly guy, kind of, well, I thought he was burly anyway, sort of pushes me out the way as he's coming rushing out the door, 
and then turns around and apologizes. Say, oh, I'm sorry, man. I mean, just a clash of two people coming in the same door. And it's Lennon. And he turned me and said, oh, my God, it's you. <laughs> he said, it's my smoking buddy. And I, and I said, yeah, Leo. And he said, yeah, I know. You're Leo Sayer. He said, you're, you're down in the cutting room today. He said, um, he said, I'm so glad things happened to you. He said, can we finally... Can we finally fess up? He said, I'm a Beatle, you know. <laughs> I said, I know. And he said, good to see you, man. And he gave me a big hug and um, went on his way. People rushing him out the door. Come on, John, come on. And he's saying, shut up. And, and, and turning around to give me a hug. It was quite sweet. You talk about how influential Bob Dylan was to you. Tell us that. Yeah, I think, I think you know, I had a cousin, an older cousin, Um I'd never experienced Bob Dylan before, but I loved Woody Guthrie and, you know, uh, all these people that, you know, Bob loved, you know, the folk musicians. Um, I, I I love what they were all doing. Rambling Jack Elliott, I'm, I'm remembering, all people like that who were in Dylan's psyche, Phil Oaks, you know. Uh, I love what they were doing separately. And then my cousin, my older cousin, went to stay with him um, in the Midlands in England, and he pulled out two records and he said, because he had a record player and he was collecting stuff, and I'd heard Bill Haley and Elvis Presley with him, you know, okay, that was great, but I could hear them anyway on the radio. And he, he just bought this record and it was Bob Dylan, the first Bob Dylan record. So this is 1963. Well, I think 62 was the first one in America that was mostly covered. 62, 62, yeah. Yeah, no, that's it, 62. And so... um Here's this record, and I'm about 15, 16, and um, something like that, maybe even younger. And he had that record, and he put it on, and the voice and the whole kind of, I don't know, almost the anarchy of the whole thing. I mean, the guy couldn't really sing great, but the uh, uh, the voice was obviously put on. He's trying to sound like an old guy of 60. Um, but there's something gripping about it, and the songs... I mean, fixing to die, please see that my grave is kept clean. The house of the rising sun. The songs were amazing. And his songs as well about, you know, about Woody Guthrie. Um, so this this record just kind of stayed with me. And I asked him if I could borrow it, and he let me borrow it. And I'd take it back and play it on Dad's radiogram, you know, those old kind of systems that we had, and and listen to it and listen to it. And it got into my bloodstream. And then when the second record came out, which was freewheeling, I, I was straight to the record store, you know, using all my pocket money, all the money that I I, I gained by uh, getting paid for delivering church leaflets, <laughs> you know, from a, from the church, all that sort of stuff, you know. I I um I went and, and put all my hard earned into buying that record, and it wasn't a disappointment. It was even better because now he's writing more songs and. Um, or at least that you know he's putting more of his own songs on there, and he's got a story to tell, and he's writing about Hattie Carroll and people like that, and you know there's the protest songs, times were changing, blowing in the wind, man, this next series of records that I had every single one, bought them all on the first day, I was absolutely totally glued to, and I thought that's the man I want to be, you know, when I finally grow up, that's who I'm going to be, I'm going to get on the road. Through him, I found Jack Kerouac and and Allen Ginsberg and you know all these great writers, uh, uh, Steinberg, Steinbeck, you know John Steinbeck and Canary Row. You know you're reading all these things. Albert Camus, The Outsiders, uh, 
you know, uh, I don't know. I, I just, it opened up a whole world for me. It opened up the world as well that told me that the spoken word, the poetry could be great as music. You know, that's what it opened up for me. And and I was trying to be a poet at the time. You know, I was always writing down, uh, you know, everything that I thought of and trying to kind of wax lyrical into these lines and on the page. And suddenly, I don't know, at some time later on, I think maybe even when I was first working with David Courtney, uh, come 1970, 1971, uh, right there, I would look at these old old lyric books, these old poetry books, and David would say, hey, I've got an idea for a tune, you know, and and, and he'd be playing away, you know, a dum dum da dum dum da dum dum da dum on the piano, and i go, I'm a one-man band. <laughs> you know, so and that would come straight off the lyric sheet, you know, or the poetry sheet. So I was using what I'd written at between twelve and sixteen. Uh, that was the first album. That was all of my poetry from those days. The basis of those songs, the basis of the lyrics. Let's go back to the beginning. Mm. Where did you grow up? Shoreham by Sea, a little town between Worthing and Brighton in Sussex, right on the English Channel. 50 miles south of London, yeah, on the coast. How far from Brighton? It was in between, I say, about seven miles from Brighton and about six miles from Worthing. The whole Brighton mods and rockers thing, was that amplified in the media or was that real and something you were aware of? Oh, that was truly real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, England basically had had a, you know, after the war, which cost England all its economy you know because it put so much into it even though you yanks came over and helped us out <laughs> we still had to pay for so much ourselves so i mean i grew up when when i was 14 years old i still had a ration card really so there was still rationing of some things you know i grew up without sugar um i've never had very much of a sweet tooth i think i'm getting one now as i'm getting older but we didn't have candy bars and things like that you know so it was all very basic, rough stuff. And our our politics became very safe, you know, very authoritarian. This is where the Conservative Party came in. Um, and basically, you know, trying to tell everybody we are so lucky to be free from war uh, that we must kind of be prepared to do it hard. So you got a, a youth that came up in the... In the 50s, I'd say, and then into the 60s, that was very disgruntled. You know, they didn't understand why when all the American kids had drive-ins and and rock music and, um, and uh, you know, girls were allowed to wear bikinis. We didn't have that, you know. So they they kind of, I don't know, they, they felt that they were left out, you know. I mean, when Rock Around the Clock with Bill Haley came out, in England, it was this phenomenon, you know, that all the kids would go to the cinema to watch it. You know, wow, can they really get away with that? You know, so everybody's dancing and jiving. Nobody would dance and jive in a in a concert or anything in England. You know, it took a little while and visits by Bill Haley and Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent before that happened. Um, and that was into the sixties. You know, fifties, the fifties, none of that happened. So the early 60s um, dissent in the youth was growing in England. And I suppose the mods grew out of that. I mean, I was a mod um, at school. 
Uh, and then the slightly older guys would be the rockers. They had all the motorbikes, you know. The, the mods took on the scooters, just to be different than the, than the rockers. And in Brighton, you know, as the mods came into being, bands like the Small Faces, the Kinks, um, you know, them playing the music that the mods liked, um, the, the, there came a clash of culture with youth, you know. Uh, the rockers were teddy boys, you know. They uh, they they kind of like live life loud and rough and very leathery, and the mods were kind of really stylish and bespoke, a little quieter spoken. I mean, later we got skinheads out of mods, um, but that's a kind of different thing because that kind of almost leads you to punk. But basically, us mods. I mean, we went to great tailors and had fabulous looking suits, you know, in silky material and really cool shoes. We wanted to look clean and bespoke, you know, rather than the rockers who looked like they were covered in oil from their motorbikes. So you had this clash going on and it all happened in Brighton and The Who, I suppose, was the, the, the big mod band that I left out there. And, and, and The Who are kind of, um, you know, with my talk about my generation describes it all really, you know, hope I die before I get old. <laughs> Did you have a scooter? No, no, I couldn't afford one. I mean, we had no money. That was for rich mods. <laughs> I had a bicycle. <laughs> Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You're singing in church, yeah. yet you want to be a fine artist. Mm. How do you ultimately get into the music business? Happened really by accident. I had a pretty good career as a graphic designer, commercial artist, illustrator, even designed type, typography. Um, I had a pretty good career. I, I left art school after only one year of a two-year course. Um, I was supposed to... Uh, I was supposed to do longer and I didn't. Um, I, I, um, yeah, I, 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 I cracked out of that and got a job straight away. And all of my friends at art school, um, were 
they were still working around a very boring course, what I, I thought was a very boring graphics course. Uh, and I had a job. It was amazing. I, 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 I'll probably digress for a moment here because I worked in a studio in Brighton. I had this gorgeous girl that I fancied like mad in the studio who came from Detroit and one day said her American boyfriend was coming in uh, to town. So she said, I'm going to London. And I said, well, can I come with you? And she said, yeah, I was looking for some company. So I'm thinking, I'm in here. Of course, I wasn't. So we went up to the Strand Palace Hotel um, in Covent Garden and uh, a big woolly head guy, tall woolly head guy, opened the door and uh, immediately hustled her into the bedroom. I just sat on the sofa. I got my harmonica out and started playing and uh, he stopped what he was doing and rushed into the room, picked up a guitar and started playing with me. And that was Jimi Hendrix. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Wait, let's slow down just a little bit. What was Jimi Hendrix's girlfriend doing working with you in the art studio? I don't know. She'd kind of come on some bad times with her family and decided to move to England. And uh, she was working in various studios. She was pretty good. Good designer, good, good illustrator as well. And we did a couple of projects together. So, you know, we got on very well. And uh, she just said, yeah, I used to go with this guy who's a rock who's a rock guitarist, but he had no money, so I gave up, you know. But he was a good lover. So, you know, that was that was why she wanted to see him again. And and so anyway, so me and James Marshall Hendricks, as he announced himself to me, or James Marshall, I think he just called himself. Um, I didn't know who he was, but we were we were playing. He's a really good guitarist, great blues feel and you know, and and we just play some blues together. And he he reckoned I could play the harmonica pretty good as well. And you know, so we jammed away while she sat frustratedly sat by the door until she dragged him back in the in the bedroom. And then uh, we we went back down to 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 Brighton where we worked and where I was living at the time. And and uh, she said cheerio, and I didn't even get a kiss. And uh, <laughs> you know, and um, and about. Four weeks later, because he told me he'd come into London on the invite to make a record by this guy who was the bass player of the Animals, who <laughs> you know seen him play and all that, you know the story, right? And so he made this record, and I went to my favourite record store in the in the in Brighton in the in this area called the Lanes, which is just walking streets, and it's a record shop called Fine Records. I remember it so well because that's where I picked up most of my material, you know. Um, I, 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 and there's this massive poster on the on the on the wall and uh, yeah, and the record cover. I'm going, that's that guy, and there he is, Jimi Hendrix. And about a week later, I'm in London and I go with some friends to a club called the Speakeasy because I've I've just done the record cover for uh, a group called Humble Pie, which was um, Peter Frampton and um, and uh, uh, Steve Marriott from Faces from the small faces. And um, I think it was Greg Ridley, the bass player, when I'd done the, you know, did the cover and the photos of the cover, I kind of got chatting to him and he gave me uh, his, his, we didn't have mobiles in those days, his home number. And I phoned him and he said, oh, if you're in London, you know, let's hook up. And, um, and then he said to me, he said, hey, you know, we're all going to the speakeasy. Do you want to come? And so I said, yeah, yeah. So I went down there and Walking onto the stage, there's all these guitarists there. All the major guitarists are in the room at the time. And I'm going, wow, you know, that's Eric Clapton over there. That's Jeff Beck. And that's Steve Howe from Yes. And all these guys are there, you know. And I'm, you know, just 
concentrate. I think it was Harry Nilsson who was doing the gig. Um, but halfway through Harry's set, on walks Jimmy. And I'm in the front row, you know, and, and I'm feeling kind of embarrassed. And I look up at him and he, he recognized me and he jumped off the stage and gave me a hug. And all these guys are looking at me, who's he? <laughs> and I just say, yeah, I know him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember Jeff Beck sidling up to me. He said, how do you know? And I told him the story. He said, you lucky bastard. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. So there you go. Being in the right place at the right time. Sorry, I digress. And I no, no, the, the digressions. <laughs> digressions are the spice of life. Don't worry about it. I'm a famous digressor. You played the harmonic with Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. How do you ultimately start a music career? Uh, I, I was, as I say, doing commercial art. I was in London. Um, I took on a studio in, in Hammersmith and, and, you know, we rented it. Big studio uh, space. And I had a lot of artist friends, mostly illustrators. You know, I... I I should say that I did some record covers in this time. I did um, uh, um, um, Bob Marley covers, Club Scar covers. Yeah, covers, again, for Humble Pie and people like that. You know, a lot of Island Records, Traffic, a lot of those rec bands at the time, you know. So I kind of, and every now and then, like gr with Greg, I'd get to meet some of the guys in the band, you know. So so I was kind of close to that. But anyway, I... I booked this, I had this huge studio and I had a lot of artists who were working with me. And um, I wasn't very good at collecting money. Uh, I've never been a good businessman in my whole life, which comes from another part of the story later. But um, uh, and I, I ran out of money and I couldn't pay for the studio and I couldn't pay the rent. And it was my, up to me to do that. So I don't know. I just kind of, I left the keys on the doorstep one day and I just, I left. I, I left it to the guys left them a long note saying, you know, if you really want to carry on with this place, you've got to come up with the rent and um, up to you, you know. I think that they 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 caved in and didn't bother when they found out how much the rent was, <laughs> you know, because they'd been all there on the cheap. They were just paying me, a, you know, a smidgen to be in there and I was just gladly giving them the space because it was a creative hub and I got work out of it as well, you know, some work. But as it was drying up, you know, there was no option and no money, so... I had to leave and I packed up my flat. I went back to my hometown. I had some friends who had a houseboat. They lived on a houseboat um, on the River Ada, the river that went through Shoreham and uh, just near the sea, uh, the mouth of the river. There's this lovely houseboat and I stayed on the houseboat for a year. I had a nervous breakdown, really. I, I couldn't draw and paint any longer. My graphic abilities just passed me by, but luckily, at the same time, as, as these marvellous cusps in one's life happen, a bunch of friends came to see me on the houseboat. One of them who lived on a houseboat a little bit further away was a mate of mine from school. And he was now long-haired and playing a guitar. And so he said, oh, I've got a blues group. I said, oh, that's great. I play harmonica. And so he said, yeah, well, why don't you get together for a jam next week? You know, so we did, and we started a band immediately. And because I had its loud voice, I was the singer. And we went from band to band to band to band. And eventually a, a guitarist who I really liked working with, who was top notch in the local musicians, um, who also wrote songs, came and lived on the houseboat with me. Uh, he, was, he had the next, the next room on the boat, big old boat it was. And uh, we started writing songs together and we decided to go 
we had a band and we decided to go to an audition. And we went to the audition. It was for the, the you'd have heard of the Melody Maker, of course, in England, right. the famous newspaper. So they had a battle of the bands going on. So they did it as areas. And um, so Southwest, I think we were called, uh, that area, which was Kent and Surrey and Sussex. Um, and we won. We won our heat. But the uh, the thing was so badly organized that in the end, I think that they pre they press ganged a couple of bands from London and forgot about our heat and the winners, you know, and we got sort of pushed out. We never even went to the the final show. So frustrated with that, we saw another ad. Uh, we saw an advertisement um, uh, in the local paper, the Evening Argus, and it was saying, you know, bands, uh, bands, acts, artists, comedians, conjurers, whatever, you know, a new talent agency is starting and there'll be a big audition at the Pavilion Theatre on Saturday, the da-da-da-da-da. Uh, this is in 1970. And we turned up at the audition and we went on stage, probably the last people to go on. There were lots of bands, uh, no audience in the theatre, um, you know, just all the bands watching each other. And we went on last and um, the guy who was holding the audition ran over and just said, you're it. And we sang a song I remember called Gypsy Dancer that me and Max Chetwind, the guitarist, wrote together. <laughs> and he stopped us halfway through and just said, start that again. And we started it again. And then he stopped us halfway through and he said, start there again. And I think he was checking that we could play it, you know. And he just turned around and he said, I'm going to give you a job straight away. I, I want to manage you. Your voice is amazing, you know. And all of the other people just sidled out the room and it was left with us. And there we were. And Patches was the name of the band. And um, I don't know, started getting talking to David and he told me he didn't really want to manage a band. It was just his dad's idea. You know, his dad was fairly wealthy and his dad wanted him to do something legitimate. And he'd played drums before for this guy called Adam Faith, who was a pop singer. So one day he said, after we'd tried a few different avenues and David and I had started writing songs together, me all based, as I said before, on those old lyric books, those old poetry books, you know, <laughs> putting my lyrics in there. And he had these kind of Beach Boys, kind of come Beatles, kind of pop uh, uh, melodies that I would put my acerbic lyrics to. And and we had something, you know, it was a yin and yang kind of thing. It was very interesting. There was these kind of very almost sad um, autobiographical lyrics going with these bright kind of, um, but very dramatic kind of uh, melodies. So we had something, I think, that was quite unique. Uh, it was a little bit like, I suppose, Bernie Taupin and Elton John could be, because, again, you're meeting, I suppose I had some eloquence to me, and David was had this kind of pop musicality, you know, um, which is very much Elton and Bernie, you know. Um, anyway, we went to see Adam, and I thought he wasn't very interested. I was left to sit in the car while he and David powwowed, and then he came running out to the car and he said, right, I've booked you in the studio um, tomorrow. That's it. Get the band together. So I went straight back, got all the guys together, said, come on, we've got to get the van. Mick, the drummer, had to take a day off work and uh, get the van kind of filled up with petrol, which was quite a job in those days because we didn't have any money. Throw all the gear in the back of the van and straight up to, uh, 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 straight up to Olympic Studios. And... Um, yeah, and, and there we were making a record.
you know, not knowing what we were doing. I think the drummer turned out to be pretty crap. And um, in the next room, the Who were recording. And uh, I don't think Daughtry was there or Townsend was there, but Entwistle and, Who and uh, Moon were there. And Adam called Mooney in during a break, and he actually played the drums on that first single. Wow. So, um, and, and Mick the drummer came in and listened to it, you know, Keith wasn't there, but he's listening to a playback going, yeah, I did pretty well there. <laughs> <laughs> it was the same part, but it was much better played, you know. So, um, I don't know. It's it's kind of, it's funny when you look back at those times, we really didn't know what we were doing. I mean, David and I, uh, uh, we sang a song uh, on the B, I sang a song on the B side that we'd both written together. The A side was David's song, Living in America. I think the folks in America, they got it good in America. Not my lyric, you know, um, but it, <laughs> it was it was fun. You know, I, here we were. Suddenly you're looking at another career because Adam, you know, one of the powerful things about Adam was that if he said something was going to happen, he had the ability to make it happen. He had incredible contacts in the in the in the business, in the whole world of show business, and in the media. You know, uh, he could just open doors. I remember once with him, just after Patches had been you know, single, living in America, had been released. We strode up to Radio One. Radio One was the big sort of you know the the big M real McCoy BBC. Uh, Radio One was was the biggest broadcast broadcaster, biggest station. And on Sunday, they used to read out the charts. Everybody would tune in, the whole country. The audience ratings were off the wall, you know. So Alan Freeman is upstairs halfway through the charts when Adam turns up with this young oik um, and, and his new album, and his new single, sorry, and meets the Jobsworth at the door. We called him Jobsworth. It's more than my Jobsworth to let you in here, Mr. Mr. Faith. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, but uh, no, they actually was sort of, oh, Adam Faith. And they said, well, I'm going up to see Alan Freeman. I said, oh, well, cool. of course, go on up. So he knew where to go. We walk straight in. The red light is on, on on the door outside and his producer is kind of looking at us rather alarmed. But we breeze in and uh, Adam says, take that rubbish off and put this on. This is your next hit. And that was it. We get our first airing, you know, on... Uh, on the Alan Freeman show, Sunday night, with the biggest audience in England watching. Okay, that's utterly fantastic. <laughs> but didn't the record stiff? The record's still stiff, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, uh, I think 50 copies. I, my, my, I think my mum bought 20. Um, yeah, 50 copies were sold. I think 55. It was on the Warner label, um, Warner Brothers label. Uh, but But Adam wasn't daunted. I mean, the whole thing was not happening, but he just said, let's go on and make the album. So he'd met Richard Branson, you know, the Virgin guy. Of course. Um, uh, of course, was just, I mean, Richard just had a record store in those days and a record label that he just started. And he'd bought this crazy studio, this manor house with a barn next to it um, in Oxfordshire called The Manor. And um, lots of people were recording up there, you know, Van Morrison, the Graham Bond organization. Uh, and he had an engineer, Tom Newman, there who was working on a little project by this unknown guy called Mike Oldfield, and which ended up being called Tubular Bells. And that was going on at the same time. And, you know, Mike was in the studio when we weren't in the studio. 
And me and Patches were in the studio most days, and then Mike would take over and do the witching hour at night. We were all staying at the place, you know. Mike was very friendly. Um, I didn't really understand his record. It sounded, you know, very, a bit silly to me at that stage. But of course, you know, when it was finally finished, it was awesome, you know, changed the world kind of thing. Um, but, you know, sometimes when a record's being made, you don't understand. And likewise, Mike would kind of come into our sessions and say, he said, your band's not very good, are they? <laughs> I say, yeah, I know, but I mean, we are, we're, we're learning, you know, we're learning and Adam's going to sort it out. Well, about four or five days in, Adam sacked the band and brought in session players. And this was awful for me because my friends were leaving out the door and, you know, and I'm sitting there on my own with David. Of course, David's my friend, but these are all new people, you know, Leo, what are you doing? And I'm trying to be Leo Sarah at the same time because we've come up with the name Leo. So Jerry has become Leo Sarah. And, uh, okay, a little bit slower. Why not Jerry? Yeah, because I'd, I was known as Jerry the harmonica player. I used to sit in with bands with Georgie Fame and, you know, and I'd play with people like Ginger Baker and in, in, in Alexis Corner's blues band. And I used to see Bill Wyman a lot. I sat in with so many bands, you know, um, that were the, you know, in, in the rhythm and blues time. I once got up with John Mayle. I played with Muddy Waters in a folk club, you know, um, and everybody, oh, there's Jerry, the harmonica player. And I thought, oh God, I can't be known as Jerry, the harmonica player. <laughs> and I was, and I was going into a new world, you know, here I was, I suddenly with this guy who was a bloody pop star, you know, a huge star. I was doing tele a television series at the time. Adam Faith, everybody knew Adam Faith. And already there was an article in the press about this Adam Faith had discovered this new talent. And of course, a few weeks later, you know, the Roger Daltrey album is released. So, whoa, 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 whoa. but that's a very significant thing. But that's later. Right. Yeah, but that's later. I'll get into that later. And, and of course, you know, what I was going to say is eventually Daltrey will be selling Leo Sayer right. as, his co as his songwriter, you see. So it's kind of relevant in a way to mention that now. But I had all these people around me that were really believing in me. So here we are at the manor. I've got the, all these session guys come in. They play amazing. Suddenly the songs are soaring. Suddenly we're really doing well. And then Adam Faith just turned around and said, look, I can't afford to do any more recording. Um, you know, I just don't have the budget. So we stopped. And then we were down in um, Brighton. I think I put on a gig and, and, and Adam bought a guy along called Keith Altham, a very famous music writer and publicist later, publicist for the Beatles, the Stones, the, the Trogs, Jimi Hendrix, of course, famous for being the guy that persuaded Hendrix to set light to his guitar. Um, Keith came down to see the band. He was writing an article about me in the New Musical Express, and um, which was a fabulous article, which, again, was a little bit of a thing to live up to. But he saw the band and he, he said, look, Roger Daltrey, I'm he was looking after The Who at the time, he said, Roger's built a studio and he needs a guinea pig to try it out. You're looking for a place to work. Let me give Roger a call. So he gave Roger a call and he came back and said, yeah, Roger says, you guys come up to the studio. You don't have to pay. You, you know, it's like you can have it for free. He'd just be delighted to have someone try out the room. So, and you can stay next door. There's a little pub called the Kicking Donkey. And uh, you can stay at the Kicking Donkey, which we did. And we went up there and started recording. And the second part of Silverbird was made in that way. 
without Adam having to shell out any more money and, you know, everything was kind of easy and breezy. And, and it was lovely working at Rogers. And it was also great spending time with this rock icon who turned out to be the nicest guy, you know. I mean, there was a connection, you see, with Adam, which was very good because Adam Faith and Roger Daltrey were born on the same street in Acton. Oh, wow. You know, Adam a few years older, of course. So these guys would be had lots to talk about. They talked the same language. They had the same accent, you know. So the, the connection was a dream connection, you know. And then one day Roger just turned around and said, look, I love these songs, you know. Um, before you finish it all up, have you got any more songs that you haven't put on the album? And and David and I said, well, yeah, we've got loads, you know. We're, we're even writing for the next album. He said, could you give me some of the songs? And we said, what? And he said, yeah, I want to make a solo album. I, Roger uh, Peter's made a solo album. Pete Townsend has made a solo album. So I want to do one. I want to show him he's not the only one who can go solo. So we said, yeah, right. So David and I looked at the list of songs we had and we got the tapes out, the old Grundig tapes that we'd made of these things. Um, and, um, yeah, we, we we decided we had quite enough and we, we talked to Adam about the idea and he said, it's great, it's a good idea. I'll produce it. Roger, well, Roger wanted Adam and David to produce it, do it in the same style and do it there in the studio. So that's how they started off. And um, they made the Daughtry album, decided to hold up my album. So I, my album's already a year old when the Daughtry album came out. Decided to hold it up because, as Adam said, and Roger agreed, look, you know, you can do more good for Leo by telling everybody about this songwriter. And he said, yeah, if it's a hit, Everybody will want to know anyway. And giving it all away hit the top 20, I think, or top 40 or something in America, went into the charts there. Uh, when is the charts in England? The album went into the charts in England. Um, so everybody was talking about Roger Daltrey's solo album when it came out, and and everybody was talking about this songwriter, and so was Roger in every interview. He said, wait till you meet this guy. He's fantastic. What a talent. Great voice as well. His songs are fantastic. I just had to do them, you know. This this was it. So I had Roger Daltrey, the lead singer of The Who, probably the biggest band in the world at that time, you know, as my publicist. Not bad, eh? No, that's how I found out about you. I bought that uh, yeah, album. Yeah, the songs yeah. were great. Giving it all away. One-man band. That's why I had to buy your record. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, yeah. So so that all kind of opened up the doors and and... Then when we released my record, the reaction was fantastic. So you could say it all happened overnight. I mean, it didn't, as you can tell from the album being held up a year, the long gestation took towards it, you know, it wasn't all that simple. But when it was released, it all happened so quick, you know. I went on tour with Roxy Music, supporting them. We want to tour in England. <laughs> Who put that bill together? Because I, I don't see the music as being in the same spectrum. Well, in a way, you know, in England, um, you had, let, let's take it, I always use that term rack jobbing, you know, when right. every everybody's in the same. I mean, we live in a rack jobbing world now, don't we? I mean, your radio show would should not appeal to someone doing heavy metal and vice versa. But in the 70s in England, it, everything went together. You know, there was no categorization. Um, people wanted variety, you know. England had grown up, I think, as well. And it's an important thing to say this. 
we'd grown up, all of our American acts that came over, came over in package tours. So, you know, you'd get Freddie and the Dreamers on the same bill as Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly. And you'd get Desa Connor, who was basically a, a crooner on the same bill as Ed, as Buddy Holly. You know, Des has got Buddy's last guitar. Um, Des sadly has died now. I think the guitars belong to somebody else. But, you know, uh, Buddy gave him the guitar. They were on tour together. And you'd get these package acts, you know, so we saw everybody together. So I think England was really into, you know, a variety show kind of, you know, live thing very much. Comedians on with the Beatles were always opened up by comedians, you know, and the Beatles would open up for comedians or classic singers like Shirley Bassey, you know, people like that. So our radio wasn't so... uh kind of programmed out to kind of think that a novelty song would be played right next to status quo or something like that, you know? And so I think English audiences wanted to be surprised on stage. And we were, that bill was put together by a Chrysalis agency. We were with Chrysalis records and the Chrysalis agency looked after Roxy music and me. So they put the, they put it together after after one show where I wasn't getting really much reaction, I decided to dress like the record cover, the Piero, the white face. So we had the same team who'd helped me get that image together for the record cover, the back of the record cover, uh, inspired by this amazing movie called Les Enfants de Paradis, which I'd loved as, a, as an art student, um, where this guy, uh, director Marcel Kahn, had got Jean-Louis Baptiste, this amazing French actor, to portray himself as the Piero, like Piero and um, and Harlequin, the famous French stories, in this movie made it during the last year of the German occupation of Paris, of France. And um, it's an amazing movie. Um, and I love this character. And when I... I'm, I'm digressing again, but I'll give you the background to how it... No, how no, that, no, keep going. I uh, Keep going. Yeah, no, how, how that came about. Uh, Roger Daltrey had a cousin, Graham Hughes, wonderful photographer, who'd shot the, the Daltrey cover. Um, and Roger suggested I went to see Graham, which I did in, in, in London. And I went to a studio and he'd just been doing a photo shoot, a fashion photo shoot for Vogue magazine. And in the background... Well, there was a girl, do you remember the Rocky Horror Show? There was a, yes. a girl called Little, ne Little Nell, who was this amazing actress and, and character in the Rocky Horror Show. She was in the shoot, and uh, that guy who played Frankenfurter, um, he was in the, 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 can't remember his name, but the actor, you know, he was in the shoot with these models. And in the background was a Piero. And... Graham straight away. For those in America, we're talking about a clown. A clown, yeah. But the, but the French Piero is different than the happy. Just for those out of the loop, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we talk about clowns, you've got two different clowns. You've got three clowns, really. That are, you've got Il Pagliacci, okay, is the white-faced, uh, sad narrator of most of those operas. Il Pagliacci is kind of, he's a fool, but as well, he's a wise fool. In France, Piero is the moralizer. He's the teller of the story. Harlequin is the bad, mischievous guy. In England, you've got Coco the Clown, as famous for all the circuits. So he's just there to entertain the kids. He's a guy with makeup on, basically not much more than that. Um, but Piero is a very serious character. 
he'll tell you a story and you, you're inclined to believe him because he has, he's expressionless in his face. And he usually tells the story in mime, a la Marcel Marceau. You know, Marcel Marceau took on the Pierrot character and basically told his story in mime. He was a mime artist. Um, so so uh, I loved Pierrot for this kind of blank-faced guy that you would listen to what he'd say. He was the storyteller. And I was a storyteller in my songs. They were all about me, you know, at, at that time. They were all about my life. Um, Silverbird and Just a Boy are basically autobiographical albums. Yeah, they were all Leo telling you his story. Whether you are a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so you go to the photo shoot and you see the Piero in the background. Yeah, I see this picture and Graham says at the same moment, so how do you see yourself then? Because he knows all about me from Roger. Uh, and I say, like that. I don't know, I just instantly reaction and point to the Piero. And he said, great, that's Julian. He said he's from Belgium. He's a street clown. And basically he's here for a few days. Why don't I bring him in tomorrow? And he said, you could try on his outfit. And I went, <laughs> well, okay, yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it's just a fait accompli, isn't it? You know, I, I wish I had my big mouth. You know? But And he's got this makeup girl called Kirsty Climo, who was, ah, oh, just one of the best theatrical makeup girls in the world. And she was a friend of his. And he said, I'm going to bring Kirsty. And I knew of Kirsty already because of friends of mine who were actors. And I went, the Kirsty client. He said, yeah, yeah, she's great. I'll get her in. She can do the makeup. She she knows how to do Piero because she'd done Pagliacci for the opera, you know. So, hey, come on. You know, so I had her and I had this wonderful, beautiful guy, Julian, with his with his suit. 
The only glitch was he was about six foot tall. <laughs> so so basically most of the, you see the gatefold inside cover, if anybody's got that, of Silverbird, and you'll see me kind of crouching down. And I'm, that's because the trousers are pinned up, you know. You can't see the pinning for the the the, the sort of like the bodice <laughs> over the top covering it, you know. But, um, but that was it. Um, and I was in his suit. And they wouldn't let me look in the mirror, okay, until it was all done. Kirsty was about an hour putting the makeup uh, uh, together and Julianne was kind of fussing with the suit and getting it right. And they found me, they, somebody went out and found some white um, dance shoes from Capizio and they put on me and um, Kirsty had developed this black bathing cap and cut with the little pointed bit in the middle, you know, perfectly to fit. So... All this is going. I think they brought a hairstylist to make sure that the hair was all pinned in because I had huge hair at that time, you know. So finally, I, I, Graham is all like jumping up and down. He says, "This is incredible. You look amazing." I, I can't see myself. All I can do is feel this awful white Leishner pan stick makeup all across my face, and uh, I know my hands are in gloves. I feel like my body has been taken away somewhere. You know, it's like weird, 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 weird. But it's exciting at the same time. And I've literally metamorphosized. I mean, you're talking about Jerry becoming Leo Sayre. He became Leo Sayre at that moment, you see, because there's no way that Jerry could ever be recognized again. So I walk out. They Right, Graham says, finished. And I walk out and I walk out in front of this full-length mirror, a whole huge, great big mirrored glass plane, pane, and I see myself and I just said, yes, that's it. I can go on like this. And it was just incredible that we did the photo shoot and, you know, afterwards took off the makeup and, and Kirsty said, you looked amazing. She said, when, when you decide to do it for real, I'll be there. And I said, for real? I thought we were just doing the photo. And it was clicking with me that I was, yeah, becoming somebody else. So we did the first Roxy show and I was just went on in jeans and nice shirt, you know, all that stuff. Nobody really noticed. They all talked and waited for Roxy to come on, you know. Um, Brian Eno had left the band, by the way, at that time. Um, he was the very much, I suppose in a way, Brian used to dress up in a similar kind of over-the-top way. Right. So the, so the glam rock crowd would like to come for him, you know. Um, but Roxy were being a bit more serious now, you know. Brian was in a white tuxedo. They were all looking very sophisticated. Um, and the second gig, I, I, I'm in my dressing room. I'm making up. And we're putting in the outfit. My wife, Janice, now has made the suit for me. Um, and she's a really good seamstress. So I had this fabulous kind of satin silk suit with the little, you know, the, the, the three um, uh, Velcro stuck on uh, bobbles, you know, that you've got on the front. The the, the 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 red spots for the cheeks, the eyes all dramatically done, the black bathing cap in place, well pinned, and the gloves on and the white shoes. And I walk out in front of the band and there's this reaction from the audience. We're playing Sheffield City Hall, I think, it absolutely packed because Roxy are a big band. You know, they don't know who Leo Sayre is, really. But the moment I walk out, there's a... <gasps> And someone shouted, Eno's back. <laughs> <laughs> and the I played five songs in silence. 
There wasn't applause. There wasn't anything. And there wasn't a murmur. Anybody, nobody was talking in the room. Everybody was just craning their eyes to see. And I didn't say a word. I just sang five songs and, and with the mime and the hands going all over the place, just like you've seen in the videos. And then I said, thank you very much. And all of a sudden the place broke out into applause. All of Roxy Music are on the side of the stage watching this, by the way. And the chants started. They started shouting, Leo, Leo, Leo. This is all on the first night of The Clown. It was just incredible. And they were still shouting Leo when Roxy went on, so they weren't very happy with me. But I carried on the tour. Brian actually thought it was great. He kept coming up to me and saying, fabulous image, fabulous image. So we we went on the tour and we went, you know, we completed the tour almost. We got into France, I think. We played a couple of gigs in France. We played some in Germany. And then the management just turned around and said, you've got to get him off the tour. He's getting too much applause. And my record was rocketing up the charts. The show must go on. And their record was mm, not doing so well. So, yeah. But that was my. That was how it started. Okay, so you finished the tour with Roxy Music. What's the next step? Uh, well, we went on a tour. Um, you know, now we're now we're appearing as the Piero, and everything's going well. The records are hit. Uh, the albums are hit. So I toured England, and then we just got this invite from. Already, we were we were with Warner Brothers in America, so we just got this invite from. Uh, I think it was. Um, can't remember the agency, but to come and do do the States. And uh, I arrived in Los Angeles. Um, we had all the makeup and the outfits, of course, ready to go. And Terry O'Neill is my photographer by this time. So the first thing we did was go down to Santa Monica Pier and do lots of show lots of shots of uh, the Piero. And, um, and I think that they used that as publicity because Nobody knew what I re who what I really looked like, which was quite interesting in America. They'd never seen Leo Sayer apart from the the record cover, and um, and and of course the Piero on the back. And I went straight to Memphis, where we started playing in a club, supporting JJ Kale. Um, I can't remember what it was called, the Mississippi something, oh, right well, uh, just outside Memphis, and. Um, Again, the reaction just started, go, went through the roof, you know. It was just incredible. Everybody's loving this thing. J.J. Cale didn't know what to make of me. <laughs> he he used to perform with hardly any lights on, um, you know, and uh, we had to bring in lights for my show because he just didn't have enough. Um, but it just went mad. We had a week in Memphis, then it was a week in Boston, and then it was ah, just all over the country. We ended up going to the bottom line in New York, um, and hit all the papers there, you know, the record started to be a success. At the same time, Three Dog Night have recorded The Show Must Go On, and that's higher up in the charts. Oh, they decided just not to release my single, I think, because Three Dog Night was version of The Show Must Go On, which still annoys me because they were singing We Must Let The Show Go On, whereas the song is I won't let the show go on, you know, in the chorus, you know, but there. And they had circus clowns, you know, going back to Coco the Clown, you know. They'd seen me performing in in London, I think, at Top of the Pops. They're probably on the same show and um, or else watched it on the TV and thought, hey, let's cover that song. So that's what they did. And, <laughs> you know, um, uh, oh, well, you know, it's they just didn't quite get it, I don't think. But didn't matter. It was a hit, you know. 
And that was the American tour. We just, everywhere we went, by the time we got to Los Angeles and Robert Hilburn was writing about us and then San Francisco where Ben Von Torres was writing in Rolling Stone about me, you know, you couldn't climb any higher, really. It was, it was quite incredible. Um, I began a friendship with, with, with Ben, actually, at that time, you know, which followed me all the way through my career. So how does Long Tall Glasses end up becoming a huge hit? While we were there on that first tour, I think we recorded One Man Band. I do believe that's Ry Kuda playing acoustic guitar on that. Wow. Because Adam tried to do some recording out there. Didn't tell me about it. Of course, this is typical of what he'd do. He just went into a studio. Here's this song. I'll play it to you and see what you can make of it, you know. So, so, uh, But we eventually came back and started recording the album uh, straight after that American tour. Um, the rest of 1974 was spent in the studio, I think, mostly, um, recording Just a Boy. So, and and I long tall glasses were really me writing lyrics inspired by my favorite movie, The Gold Rush, Charlie Chaplin. Oh, what a great movie! Oh yeah, yeah. And you know the scene, the scene where he goes into the bar and he's got to dance. He's not really dressed for the part, but he kind of pretends he is, you know. And and I I thought about me. I was thinking about me in America. I was just I was shell shocked over the reaction in America because everybody said, you know, why do you need to dress as a clown? You can sing. You've got all the you're really talented. I'm going, well, yeah, really? Because I was thinking I'm never going to be as good as my heroes, my American heroes, Otis Redding and uh, you know Wilson Pickett and and even Bob Dylan and you know all, all of the great American artists, Sam Cooke. Wow, you know Elvis. I, I just thought I was going to be a bit player, you know, in the music scene. But they kind of thought I was really special and they persuaded me, you know, take off the makeup, show your real self. You're a good looking guy, you know, come on, you can be a big star. So I was kind of mm, a bit embarrassed by all of this. And I felt like the guy in the gold rush who goes into the bar, you know, I was traveling down the road feeling hungry and cold, saw a sign saying food and drinks for everyone. Food and drinks is like, you know, the American riches, you know, you can, all of this can be yours. Girls partying, fast cars, clubs, you know, best hotels, fame, um, groupies, you know. Um, and and uh, I, I didn't really know how to handle it, you know, so I, I was very shy. Um, so I the song is all about, you know, he says, oh, I can't dance. Like I'm saying, I can't sing. You know, I'm not really, no, I'm not that good. And and the song kind of gets to a point where he just says, oh, he's just so fed up with this barracking going on from everybody. And he just turns around and said, oh, all right, okay, hang on, wait a minute. <laughs> and he says, you know, I can dance. You know, So in other words, it's America, you see. If you believe you can do something and you show the confidence, then you can do something. You know, all you have to do is bullshit everybody into saying you're brilliant. And they all think you're brilliant. So that's how it seemed to me. It was an easy ticket. Um, and that's what that song is about. It's about the metamorphosis to where you actually think, why not give people what they want and stop being so petulant about it? You know. Okay, so ultimately you break up with David Courtney and you end up working with Richard Perry. How does that happen? <laughs> well, Adam was always very crafty. He claimed when we went for the third album, another year which i'm very very proud of um he claimed that david wasn't interested in working with me any longer because basically he wanted to do his own project 
which actually was patently not true. I mean, David wanted to do his home album, but there was always going to be time for that because I would be away on a six-month American tour very soon anyway, second tour, and David had plenty of time to do that, you know. Um, and when I phoned David, well, I found he'd changed his number. But Adam had set all this up. You know, he'd said to David, you shouldn't be working with him. You're good enough to do it on your own. You know, he split us up, basically. So I had a bass player I was working with. He's a wonderful guy. He was in, you remember the band Supertramp? Of course. Well, Frank was a founding member of Supertramp. But he left because basically the band had no money. They weren't going anywhere. So Frank had to get jobs as a as a jobbing session musician, you know, um, and, and work with other bands to to you know, to make a living. So he turned up in one of my roadies' houses, um, staying in a flat there. And there was a piano there, and Frank was always playing piano, and I thought he was a great pianist. He was a bass player. And I asked him to join my band, and he joined the band. But it turned out he was really talented. And I was, you know, I, I was frustrated with David, but I was coming up with all these songs um and ideas for songs and i'd start singing melodies to them you know and i'd and i i played some to frank and he said okay got onto the piano and started fleshing them out you know so i had a new writer and he was taking my melo, melo, yeah my melody ideas and then taking them further and then eventually of course he would come up with some melody ideas but basically i was much more in control so even though i'd lost david i was very happy because I could actually kind of make the words fit the music, you know, because I could imagine what the music was going to be. I didn't have to wait for a co for a, a, a songwriter to give me a melody to sing to. So the whole process became closer, you know, with Frank. So we made this record another year, and I thought it was great. But Adam was patently getting less interested in being my producer. He brought in Russ Ballard. Uh, Russ Ballard was... Um, uh, oh, God, I can't remember all the bands. Argent. Argent, there you go, um, at that time. But in an earlier version, uh, Russ was Adam's uh, guitarist. And on Silverbird, going back to Silverbird, he's the guy who plays the banjo on The Show Must Go On and all, most of the guitars on that record. Um, so Russ came in with Adam as co-producer, and Russ is brilliant, great producer, and a fantastic pianist. You've no idea how a guitarist could be. I think he was trained on piano. Um, so he's playing piano on the album. Uh, didn't play any guitar. Frank's playing piano on the album as well. And we've got a great bunch of, ba of uh, in the band. Some of the guys that have been on the first album, we, you know, we, we, uh, we made another year so quickly because Adam, he said, I just want to do it in two weeks because I'm busy. So <laughs> we made the whole album start to finish in two weeks and no chance for retakes and anything. But, and the, so I kind of, I suppose a rough and ready approach and the mix isn't perfect, but we did get some great strings on there. And I think it's one of my finest albums personally. So, okay, close that out. Um, for some reason, I think I had wisdom tooth operation. I failed to make the American tour, so we couldn't promote it. And Adam, I think, influenced Warners to kind of like go quiet on the album, not spend much money. I think at this time he was discovering that he could actually get them to pay a lot of money out and put it in his pocket and not give most of it to me. So that was basically the modus operandi that he discovered. He could make money out of an artist, you know. So that's what he started to do. He's a bit of a rogue like that. So, um, so there we were. We went to America to 
talk to producers because he was wanted a new producer. I I wanted Jerry Wexler or Ralph Warnocker. Those two were uh, the guys that I liked, or maybe even Tom Dowd. Um, although Tom Dowd's record of Atlantic Crossing was a little bit too mainstream for me, you know, I didn't. Although I'd heard, of course, what he'd done with Aretha and all of those, you know, those great acts that the Allman Brothers and everything Tom had done, you know. Um, but Adam just came back and uh, he went and did all the meetings. And he came back and said, look, I don't, nobody's interested, only Richard Perry. And I went, Richard Perry, um, okay. Richard Perry is a very glossy producer. You know, he makes very sophisticated records. He makes records that are almost a pedantic. And the only one I really like is the Sh Nilsson Schmilson album, Schmilson in the Night, you know, the orchestral one, which is which is glorious, which they made a movie of, you know, and, and the video is fabulous. And uh, I don't know, something about that record and, of course, Harry's great talent, you know. Uh, I thought that that was pretty good, but I didn't like his record with Art Garfunkel and I didn't like his record with Barbara Streisand and Martha, Martha Reeves. Nah, not very much. So I went in there kind of mm, thinking, is this all there is? But Adam had very carefully shoehorned me into working with Richard. Richard had seen me apparently play at the Troubadour when I went there in 1975 and fell in love with the act and just wanted to produce me. So he'd been badgering uh, uh, Adam to get to get, get me together with him. So we met up. Uh, and I, I didn't take to Richard very well at first. He was a crazy guy. Uh, there were a lot of drugs around. It wasn't my kind of scene, you know. And I, and I wanted to do my own songs. I mean, that's all I did was I was a singer-songwriter. And he turned around to me and said, I, I don't completely hear it. I, I don't like your last album. And I, 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 don't, I don't hear you just as a songwriter. In fact, I, I think your voice is the best quality you've got. And I went, what? So he said, let's find some covers. And oh, I'm in this situation where I'm kind of thinking, oh, no, this is, I'm going to pack this all up and go home. This isn't working. But we both agreed that we like Motown and soul music. So we ended up going into the studio and cutting Tears of a Clown, um, Reflections, the Supremes, um, what Becomes of the Brokenhearted, I believe. Um, and it was a fantastic session because he brought in the best musicians. Wow, the A-Team, you know. I mean, really, Larry Carlton and all these, you know, great. Mike Omardian on piano, wow, you know. Jeff Beccaro on drums, Willie Weeks on bass, you know. It was an incredible band. The vibe was great. All the guys loved me and I loved working with the band, so... You know, jamming with them was was a pleasure. And then every now and then we just had to serious up and do a song for Richard. Uh, and I think there was potential. You know, I saw the potential. I saw that I could hold my own with great musicians, you know. Afterwards, I'm out drinking with all the guys and Willie's coming around to my house. Come on, come on, let's, let's do some Hendrix. Let's jam, you know. And I'm thinking, shit, these guys are now my friends. So the whole project kind of took me over, as it were. And... Um, we started off, you know, I'm semi-happy because I want to do my own songs. I keep playing songs for Richard and he keeps saying, nah, I don't see that. Bit too British, you know, all that stuff. And one day we're jamming 
um, in the studio in between takes for When I Need You, uh, which we've been working on, you know, to get this song good by Albert Hammond and Carol Bayasega. Lovely song. Um, and and I'm, I don't know, I'm just having fun because Jeff Picaro and I used to, uh, we lived just around the corner. He was in Kirkwood Avenue and I was on the corner of Kirkwood and Laurel opposite the county store. You know that that spot? Of course. Um, and uh, I was renting this house right on the corner. And um, and he and I used to, he used to pass my house and he'd toot his horn as he came by in his Corvette. And then I didn't drive at the time. My driver, David, would be ready and um, driving me and we'd travel in together you know, pretty much in convoy down to Melrose Avenue to Studio 55, 5505 on Melrose. Now, Pana, now, now, um, um, what do you call it? Um, um, uh, what's that studio? Paramount's, now Paramount's parking lot, unfortunately. It's not a studio any longer. And, um, and on the way, you know, we'd listen to music and Jeff turned around to me and said, hey, did you hear that song today? I said, do you want that that one with that high singer? He said, yeah, sings just like you. Shame, Shame, Shame by Shirley and Company. And I start singing it in the studio. And Jeff's playing the drums. And shame, 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 shame on you because you can't dance too. You know, with the falsetto, which I always had this great falsetto from being a choir boy, you know. And um, and we start jamming. Now, the rest of the guys pick up on it. Ray Parker Jr. is playing guitar. Groovy guy. Groovy guy. He's playing this incredible rhythm guitar. And I start, you got a cute way of talking. And it's just a jam. It's going on for about 15 minutes. And un unknown to us, I mean, you know, Richard, it was a change tapes moment in the studio. 24 track, reel to reel. So, you know, you've got to wait till the next tape is on, line it up. And then you can carry on recording. But Richard had kind of, I was, I was thinking he's letting us go a long time, you know, before he, come on, guys, let's get back to the track. <laughs> he's going on a long time before this, this eventuality. And, of course, in the studio, meanwhile, Howard Steele, the engineer, is telling me, he's saying, this is great. Get that tape off. Put a fresh one on. You know, start recording now, now, now. Get this. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. And you know, we didn't know all this because in the end, he just turned around to us and says, okay, guys, very nice, but let's get on. We've got to cut this track today. Come on. Time is money, guys. You know, we carry on with recording when I need you. About two weeks later, he calls me up to his office and he's made, put it onto a cassette and uh, this jam session. He said, that is your hit. He said, on my life, I say, it's one of the biggest things I've ever heard. That is your hit, you know. How we got to take get a chorus, we got to finish this thing. But that he said is a crossover hit. He said, and and the year before we'd had staying alive, you know the oh no no jive talking the Bee Gees right jive talking, and you know which Arif Martin record produced, you know uh, with the Bee Gees, and he said that is your jive talking. He said that thing is gonna, it's incredible. I I. I I can really do something with this. So there was a guy called Vinnie Poncia who was a producer and co-writer with a lot of people, work with Ringo Starr on the records that um, Richard did with Ringo Starr. And um, and we called, uh, uh, Richard called him in. He had a bad back, I remember. He had some major problem where 
hey, I've got to go and see my chiropractor, Leo. You know, all this American stuff that I didn't, <laughs> this little British guy didn't understand the, ped- the pedantry of it all, you know. <laughs> Richard's got to get his joints rolled just so, you know, and um, and everybody's got these, you know, the, the chair in the studio is not right. I'm, I, I, we have to take a day off so I can go shopping for chairs. You know, these are the guys I'm working with. I just want to get on with this fucking record that I've, it's costing me a fortune. <laughs> so we have five minutes to work and we managed to kind of take it up to another key and we had the chorus, put it on the cassette, join the two together and we got a song. So next thing that happens is, I don't know, there's a call from Donald Fagan, who we both knew pretty well. He's got a great band that's come down from New York, but he's got a writer's block. He's got nothing to record. And Bill Schnee, his engineer, who's sometimes engineered with us, is has got Producers Workshop, his own boutique studio, up there with Chuck Rainey in town and, and Michael Amardian and Larry Carlton and Steve Gadd has come down with Chuck Rainey from New York. And he says, you, you've got to, this band is incredible. Donald's got nothing to record today. Do you want to come in? And Richard said, I think I've got the tune for that. So we went in and um, he brought it, brought in his reel to reel. There were two machines going and they were spinning the two, t- two reels together and dubbing onto Steve Gadd's drums onto that. You know, I don't know how that worked, but the band is all, you know, playing. And I don't know, somehow out of it, we just, Steve had this incredible drag, drag snare feel, which is famous for, you know, he's playing away. Um, and Bill's recording it all and Richard's, you know, over the moon and, and I'm singing next door to, to Steve and Steve and I getting along like an absolute house on fire with all the musicians, you know, and, um, and we come out of it. We've got, you make me feel like dancing and there's still a little bit more time to go. So Richard says, can we do another track? And Bill says, oh, I don't know. You know, what do you got? And they play how much love and the guys just say yeah actually richard t was was came down from new york and he hears it and it's a just complete bang out gospel tune you know for for piano anyway i'd written it with barry mann who wrote you lost that loving feeling you know so it was a fantastic little tune um so richard's on piano and yeah we got that done in an hour or half an hour so we came out of that studio with a three-hour session with two songs two hits Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. 
It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So you have this great success with Richard. You continue to work with Richard. Mm. How do you break off with Richard? He didn't want to do it any longer. I mean, he just, he wanted to move on. Also, he was very expensive. I think that that was a, you know, a problem with for Adam, although we were getting great success all around the world. The, you know, when you've got records and the producer's taking 12% of the record as well, that was his fee, you know. Uh, he would take a long time to make records, a lot of editing. Uh, it, it just, it, it's something that we couldn't sustain, I think, either side. He wanted to move on to other things as well, you know. He had a chance to... Um, make records, uh, also start his own label. I think he started uh, recording the Pointer Sisters and he had his own label. He had his, he moved to... Planet Records. Yeah, he moved to, he put an office in um, uh, Hollywood, uh, Sunset Boulevard and, uh, you know, he wanted to go in a different direction. I think he wanted, um, I think maybe we couldn't pay him enough, you know, so he wanted to kind of like, you know, get people who would pay him more, you know. He was very money-oriented, Richard. And so then you go back with David Courtney? Well, I was still in L.A., you know, and I was now enjoying living in L.A. And, uh, you know, the lovely thing about records is that you always kind of like uh, reap the success a year or two years after you've recorded. So 1979, I'm still living off 1978. You know, uh, I've got... a great last record we made, just called Leo Sayre because nobody could think of a title. But we've got Raining in My Heart on there and uh, a hit in the UK, I Can't Stop Loving You, a song by this lovely guy, Billy Nichols, um, that was really being a big hit there. And so we had a fine record, you know, um, to to live off, and I'm touring. And David turns up again. He's living in LA. Uh, we're all talking again and becoming friends again. He comes to a few shows. And he says, look, I'd love to produce you again. And I said, well, you know, you'll have to square it with Adam. He said, no, Adam thinks it's a good idea. And by this time, David's done quite a few records as a producer. And he's very in with Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper and all these guys. He knows all the guys I work with as well. He hadn't worked with Jeff Picaro, but I brought Jeff in and Steve Lukather and a few guys from my sort of side in, uh, Michael Amadian as well, you know, Um uh and and we just we just suddenly got recording i we went to sunset sound and recorded here very quickly um umberto gatica was the engineer who famous engineer later on was one of his first ever records he cut but he was amazing and um uh you know we had a fantastic team i brought in uh billy payne uh to play keyboards um, who was who I loved working with because I used to jam with him and Lowell George all the time, you know, up in the canyons. And so I asked Billy if he'd be on. He said, yeah, I'd love to, man. You know, so well, David Lindley we brought him, pedal steel guitar, you know. And uh, so it, it, we made a fantastic record. Um, but I don't know why the record company wasn't really, I mean, they they 
you know, I suppose they'd spend a lot of money on the Richard Perry projects, you know, because Richard was very demanding. Producer, director type, you know. Uh, and now David was a bit softer. So I think a little bit less money got spent pushing that, you know. Um, I thought it was a bloody good record, really. So then you go to work with Alan Tarney. How does that happen? Well, running out of money in, <laughs> to live in America, you know. And me and my wife, Janice, were kind of thinking, we can't keep this up, you know. It's just crazy. So Chris Wright of Chrysalis Records plays me this song by this guy, Alan Tarney, when I was visiting London. He says, you should think about working with this guy. And, uh, and the song was We Don't Talk Anymore, Cliff Richard. And he says, you know, the great thing about this guy, he plays everything himself, just him and the drummer. And he's got a unique way of working. And I'm kind of, at this time, I'd started to build my own studio. And I was going in this direction myself. And I was thinking, oh, this is interesting. And he'd really love to work with you. So I met with Alan Tarney, and he had a couple of great songs that we went straight into the studio and recorded. R.G. RG Jones studio in, in Wimbledon. And they both ended up on the record and we decided to make an album from there. You know, we got on really great. I loved his technique, just him and me in the room. Trevor Spencer would then come in and play drums. Uh, one of the last things after, you know, we worked off one of Trevor's drum loops at the time. Technology was in its infancy, but Alan was already mastering computers and there was this crazy system where you could put in one note at a time. And it made a very interesting kind of sound because we were all discovering sequencing at the time, you know, this, uh, the, this way of making records, Lynn drum machines and, and, and sequences, you know, working off computers. And while it was all very metronomic, if you put human instruments to it, like guitars and bass and vocals, you got a great kind of swing off it. I don't know how to describe it, but it's it's a fascinating thing, you know, that uh, humanity and robots together. <laughs> Virtual AI, early AI, I think. And um, so we made this record and right at the end of it, we were, <laughs> we had an extra day of studio time and we didn't know what to do with it. So we sat around watching TV, trying to think of ideas. We thought we'd do a cover, you know. First off, we had a slowed down version of Don't Be Cruel. Don't want to be a tiger, you know, really slowed down like that, you know. Um, no, Treat Me Nice. Was it Treat Me Nice? One of those anyway, because tigers play too rough, whatever that song is, you know. Um, so oh, it wasn't going anywhere, you know, and we were watching the TV and an ad came on for the greatest hits of Bobby V. And Bobby V made an album when Buddy Holly had died. They were both with Coral Records. So the crickets, Coral didn't know what to do with the crickets, who were incredibly talented themselves. So they put Bobby V meets the crickets and made this record in 1960. And the hit out of that record was a song called More Than I Can Say. So um, there it was on the TV. Well, ooh, oh, yeah, yeah, I loved you more than I can say. And Alan and I both looked at each other. We both loved that song in our past, you know. And we said, let's do that. So we went in about one o'clock, this well, one fifteen. Uh, we actually had to rush to a record store to find the original record. Uh, those days you couldn't call up anything on the internet, of course. Uh, there wasn't an internet, <laughs> you know. So we went to a record store and somebody found a shrink wrap copy behind the desk. It had just been delivered. Only, only, only just came out. Greatest hits of Bobby V. 
And there on it, track eight or so, is more than I can say. So we spin it and we kind of get the chords down and, you know, and we start working on it. We find the right key for my voice. Um, and by midnight, we've got it mixed, finished, ready to go. All the vocals on it, everything. Oh, well, it wasn't mixed. I mean, we still got it mixed. But... Um, there it was, a, a great use of that extra day that we hadn't calculated for. <laughs> and Adam Faith and everybody turned around and said, that is your single, you know. So that became the first single, more than I can say. The only song on there that I didn't write. And there it was. Beca it became my comeback hit in America. Yeah, so that's a big hit. How do you end up working with a reef? I'd met a reef a few times in London, and I really liked him. I mean, we had mutual friends with some of the guys with the, the Bee Gees, and... Um, and he just, he was coming into London. I think Arif was trying to find something new. So he was linking up with a lot of songwriters there and finding songs, you know. Um, and I think, I think he just kind of was really into British talent at the time. And uh, he made a call. I got a call. Hey, it's Arif Mardin. I don't know if you know me. Of course I know you. <laughs> and he said, um, I'm in London. And I'm staying at the Mayfair Hotel and I'd like to meet up. And I said, great, I, I come over. He said, now. <laughs> and I said, so I went straight over. They said, look, I want to make a record with you. I love living in a fantasy. Love all your records with with Richard. You know, um, could, we, could we talk about a project? And I said, great. Well, I'll get on to the record companies. He said, I've already talked to them. And I said, I'll get on to Adam. He said, I've already talked to him. He said, we're starting now. He said, listen to these songs. And so, you know, he played me a load of songs and I played him a, a load of songs that I'd written, um, some with David Courtney that I hadn't got round to recording yet. And he said, I think we got an album. So we went to New York, started recording. Then we went to LA and recorded some more. But this was a time when a few nefarious things were going on with Adam, unfortunately. Yeah, it was, like I said, he was trying to sort of get money out of the record company and money wherever he could and for projects that he wanted to do and, and you know, was not really there all the time as the manager. I was hanging on to him because I didn't know where else to go. Um, and when it came to, we finished the record and I was very proud of it. Barry Gibb wrote us a song, um, Heart Stop Beating in Time. And there was a lovely song by a bunch of guys in England called Have You Ever Been In Love? We had two major signal singles on there. The title track was a song David and I wrote, David Courtney and I wrote yet again, uh, called World Radio. So the album was called World Radio. We took it to Warners and they said, look, we don't have any budget for this. I said, but I'm going to be on Solid Gold next week with Dion Warwick, you know, co-hosting. And I can, I can, they want me to sing some of the songs. They said, yeah, well, good luck with that, but we don't have any budget for a single. So I go on this show and I sing these two songs and the audience goes mad. TV goes mad in America. Everybody loves it and they can't buy the single. What can you say? It's like, it's a disaster. It's really, it was a really sad moment. Who do we blame? Do we blame Adam? Do we blame the people at Warner Brothers? <laughs> Well, Warners weren't that easy to get on with at that time. I mean, I signed to Joe Smith. Joe Smith at this time had gone. It was Mo Austin. I mean, Mo Austin is the guy that in 1977, when I got my Grammy, 
turn around to me at the Grammy party afterwards and say, hey, Leo, sooner or later, you're going to win one of these things. Whoa. <laughs> so, so, I mean, he didn't even know I'd won a Grammy because he was so, you know, in, in raptures over all the Fleetwood Mac rumours Grammys at that time. So I had a company that was a bit disengaged with me, you know, in America. And, um, you know, and then when I deliver something, they're just thinking of how much it's going to cost to sell, you know. Uh, I, I don't think there was a, I don't think there was anybody really listening to the record. You know what I mean? Okay, but let's go back to Adam now. Mm. You believe Adam is stealing from you. You ultimately sue Adam. What's going on there? Well, eventually, yeah. Um, it was a little bit later that I, I managed to extricate myself from all of that. Um, and I'm thinking if I just pack up with Adam, I won't get my properties. You know, I won't get my my master's. I won't get all the things that I should get because he had me on a power of attorney um, agreement very early in my career. So I signed away everything to him. He could do anything on my behalf without me even having to consult with me, you know. So he had my publishing. We had the same accountant. We had He had my record uh, rights. He had everything. So to extricate myself from this guy I had to be done kind of carefully, you know. Um, and... Eventually, I think he just gave up and, you know, I, I got everything back, which was amazing. It was tough, but it was, I got everything back. Suddenly I owned my whole catalogue. I owned my, all my songs. Uh, he just gave me the publishing companies. Um, I, I owned all the records. He gave me the record company that I was signed to. I mean, production company, right. like record company, you know, that then leases to, right. you, know, of course. you know, has you know has done. So I, I had all those companies. Um, I had all those rights. And do you still own them? No. Nope. I met a guy. I still had a problem with Chrysalis Records, where Chrysalis Records in England had paid out a, a very large sum in those days, 650000 to entice me to do another 10-year deal with them when 10 years ran out in around 1983, yeah? So in 1983, I discovered, even though I'd extricated myself from Adam, that, uh, well, 1984, I think it was, um, that I was still signed to Chrysalis and under the terms of the old deal, which meant I couldn't get anything back from them. So I questioned this and I got a lawyer. I found a manager in the end who got me a lawyer um, who'd, done a lot of great stuff for Elton John and he he managed to threaten um, Chrysalis, Chris Wright uh, quite heavily into giving up um, yeah those those, those rights um, and I got free of them but the guy who introduced me to the lawyer turned out to be an even bigger crook <laughs> than Adam was and um, he just said, okay, now you've got all your rights back. You're really free. Get on with your record. So I moved to the country in England. I was off far away from London uh, all of a sudden, living in this beautiful cottage in, in 70 acres of land or so, you know, with a studio there and everything, all going really well, planning my next record, writing my songs, uh, not kind of knowing exactly, you know, who I was going to work with, but basically getting on with it, you know. And in the meanwhile, he was signing away all my rights with a forged signature back to Warner's, uh, back to Chrysalis, now with a label called the Hit Label, 
signing away my publishing rights. It was an absolute mess. I broke into its office one day because he'd changed the locks on the keys, my office actually, and um, found out that he'd also managed to drum up about £160,000 on credit cards to take his wife on holiday all over the world and do things like that. So he was stealing money off me with credit cards and, um, yeah, and signing me to deals that I couldn't get out of. So today, at this late date, (laughs) you own none of your publishing, none of your mass recordings. It was very interesting. We came to, uh, you'd remember a lovely guy called Bob Emma. Of course. Uh, I'm sure, yeah. Uh, Bob and Sue, a lovely couple. I don't know if Bob's still around, but uh, Bob was a beautiful cat. And um, he was with Warner Brothers. Okay, so he was one of the old school Warner Brothers guys still there. Russ Tyrett and um, all those guys had long, long left, you know. Um, And Mo Austin's there running the the show and his son is there as well. Um, And Bob is still there. And I don't know, Donatella, marvellous Donatella Piccinetti, my partner, um, uh, who'd seen me go through all this rip-off. She was with me now, the new lady in my life, as it were, is starting to get involved in the management. She's learning how to manage me and she's learning how to, because we're in a shit, you know, we're, we're ba- almost bankrupt. We had accountants telling us we should file for bankruptcy and just give up the business and everything, you know. And I'm thinking, no, I can't do that. So she uh, heard from somebody in the business that Bob Emma was coming into London so she managed to get a meeting with him at the hotel. I don't know how she did it, but Bob sat down with him and, he, and she said, well, you know, Leo said, and he said, I love Leo. And Sue was there as well. And they said, oh, we love Leo. Whatever happened to Leo? Well, Leo signed back with your label. Really? They didn't even know. Um, and basically he gets no royalties. He sold his catalog to you. What? I can't believe Leo would ever do that. He's, I saw a poster, Bob said. You know, he's playing here in London. <laughs> you know? So they're in shock. And Bob just says, look, Donna, I'm going to get his royalties back. So And he did. He got a deal. I couldn't get out of Warner. I'm still with Warner in Australia and still with Warner in America via Rhino. I'm not very happy about it because they never do a damn thing. Um, they never release anything. They're just, ugh, you know. Um, but they're just holding on to me. They hold on to those those rights over the last records. Uh, if I had enough money, I'd be out of there. But um, I'd have to buy my way out, you know. So, um, so, but we managed to get royalties again. We got, you know, suddenly we didn't get back royalties, of course, in the time that Lynch had stolen them all. But um, this guy, Michael Lynch, that's what, that's what his name was, the crook who forged my signature. But we managed to uh, we managed to kind of get that back, and then gradually, of course, we got um, uh, uh, we got uh, an arrangement with Universal as well, where he'd sold the songs to them, and we got back publishing rights for them. They sold Universal sold off to another company anyway, who look after it now, and you know the royalties are all pretty intact. And since then, I mean, you know the guys. I've been approached with Prime by I was approached by Primary Wave. And um, I was approached by quite a few people. I had a, a very good friend down here, a wonderful music business lawyer here, a friend who who went to Primary Wave and represented me. And um, and now I share my catalogue and royalties um, with Primary Wave. 
basically my earnings. Okay, just so I understand, you don't own the records, you don't own the publishing, but your writer's share and your royalties are now with Primary Wave. Yeah, split with me, Yes, with Silverbird, my company. And did you get a good check to do that? Very, very nice, thank you. <laughs> okay. I've probably sworn to secrecy over the over the amount, but it's it's made life a little bit easier. You know, we've paid off okay. the mortgage of the house and all this sort of stuff, you know. Okay, so now financially, how are you doing? Yeah, very good. Very good. Okay. Yeah, very good. I mean, I'm not in the wealth category that I should be in, where, you know, along with most of my contemporaries for what I've done. And I suppose I can't really choose, you know, if I wanted to, if I wanted to say play Glastonbury, I don't really have the kind of people behind me who could push that because uh, I can't really afford to hire PR and promotion teams, you know. I'd love to be able to, but uh, I work very independently because I work within my budget, you know, so... Let's go back a step. Hmm. What happened with your first wife? We divorced. She got fed up with being Mrs. Sayer, I think. And she was she was going for a tough time and and... You know, we we split. That was it. And how was that for you? I promised never to speak to her again. We promised to, you know, to to not contact each other. What was the basis? What was the inspiration for that? She wanted to go back to her maiden name and have a new life and not be Mrs. Sarah any longer. You know, because it's a tough thing for the women when, you know, we go to American or business meetings, you know, and they say, "Uh, hey, Leo, nice to meet you. I say, this is Janice, my wife. And they say, oh, hi, Jan. Anyway, Leo. And, you know, you're just, she's, she was a very intelligent girl and she didn't like that. You know, she didn't like that she couldn't get the respect. It's a man's world, isn't it? You know, and um, still very much. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, so she needed a change and she'd been incredibly supportive of me in the time we were together. Uh, Also, you know, I must say that I had met Donna at this time and also was, um, I suppose, you know, lining myself up for a new life, you know, with with Donatella, um, which happened by chance. I mean, Janice and I were going through a bad period. You know, these things happen. You meet somebody else. And there it went. But I'm glad to say I'm still with Donna and very faithful now, you know. And that's been 36 years or so we've been together. So Okay. So you ever want to have children or that was something? No, it never came into the equation. I mean, Janice didn't want them when we were together and we would rather travel than spend the time to make babies. So that was the choice. And I think, you know, leaving that behind then and going into now, um, I don't know. I've, I've always been this very unusual operator. <laughs> I, I'm very much, you know, an insular person working within myself. So I suppose really siblings, I never even thought about it. You know, I'm lucky that I've had women in my life who've been very supportive to my lifestyle. Um, but basically, I think the buck always stops with me, you know. That's that's it. Okay, let's go back. You're working with Richard, then David Courtney again, then Alan Tarney. You have some success. You're working with Arif. Yeah. You realize you're being ripped off, like the story you're telling with Warner Brothers, mm. where they're not going to commit, even though you're on solid gold. What's it like to all of a sudden realize you had your time, but you're not the priority anymore? Ah, and it's a really good question. But you know how this business works. You know, one minute you're thinking about that and going, oh, God, and you're talking to Janice and you say, we've got to go home. Then the next minute the phone rings and you're on midnight special. What do you say? You know, I mean, 
I'm a very gregarious guy. Everybody seems to like me. All the musicians that I've worked with are still my best friends. I talk to Ray Parker. I talk to, you know, all these guys all the time and we're all friends and we, you know, I, I'm, I'm a guy who just looks for the positives. So very stupidly, I wouldn't have put my books in order. I'd have just cracked on. I mean, many other people, I think Bob would have just stopped and said, right, you've got to sort this out now. But I never did. I didn't do it until it was too late. And then when I did sort things out and took on a different mindset with it all, uh, I think that I, would, I, by this time, had stated my case enough, you know, uh, recording-wise and live-wise that I had a real legacy that I could take a break from for a bit, you know, and sort out the business side. But I think when all that was going on, I was still kind of like feeling that I was half-proven, you know, and there was still a lot of work to be done. Um, I mean, you're only as good as your records, you know, and you're only as good as your last live show. So I was feeling at that time that I still had to stay on the case and do the job. You know, don't complain about these things. You're living well. It's okay. So how do you feel about your legacy at this moment in time? Proud of all of it, even the mistakes. I like the whole way it fits together. And I like being this kind of slightly obscure artist as well. I mean, I'm not on everybody's lips and I'm not, um, you know, I'm not headlining Glastonbury or playing Madison Square Gardens where I think I should be. Part of me thinks I should be. But um, but I've still got a lot to, you know, there's still a lot of leeway um, for things to come. And I kind of like that. I'm still hungry. I'm still ambitious. Don't know why. I'm 74 in May. I mean, I can't really be looking at another 50 years. So what? What? Uh, where do you go from here? But I'm having a ball at the moment. I'm really enjoying it. I'm enjoying the legacy, writing my book and doing all the research and finding out that I've, I've done more than I thought, you know, achieve more because I've always been looking at the ball right you know, in play at the, at the moment rather than looking back very much. Can you get a victory lap? Can you get a manager or somebody involved who will get you on the stage in Glastonbury, will get you <laughs> one more time around? Because you still have your voice and you have all those hits. Well, who knows? Who knows? I mean, the only problem is that most people in this, in, in this game at this moment have such a vested interest in everything that they do or want to have a vested interest. I mean, it's all about money now, you know, the business has changed. So what's a manager going to do with Leo Sayre? Uh, he's going to want to make as much money before the guy has a heart attack and kills over. He's going to want, because he's used to getting it from young acts, he's going to want everything. He's going to want total ownership. So where do I go? Who do I go to? That's not going to fuck me over. Because that's the name of the game. We fuck people over now. That's what we do. Well, that's a separate conversation, although your points are well taken. So you don't have a manager today. I do. I have a manager in England and a manager in, in Australia. And they just get me work and look after the business, as it were. And Donatella oversees everything. <laughs> then you have an agent. Who's your agent? Do you have a worldwide agent? Not really. Not really. We, um, we, I mean, when we tour in England, we have an agent there that puts all the gigs together and does a very good job of that. Uh, he does a few other acts, but he's not the biggest. Um, and I'll tell you what I do have. I have an amazing lawyer and incredible accountants, both in England and in here. And I split my business uh, north and southern hemisphere. So basically, 
if you like, when I play America, it will be with the English band and the English team. And when I play, say, China, it will be or China or, or Asia. It will be with the Australian team. So I have a band in Australia and a band in England. And how many gigs a year do you do and how many do you want to do? Well, I'm just off to the UK. We're finishing an Irish tour that um, first off that we started in 2020, but got broken into because of COVID when suddenly, you know, you couldn't have more than 200 people um, in a venue at one time. So we had to scotch those rest of those gigs, postpone them. And then I'm doing the rest of those and a few more in Ireland in August. And then I'm doing a 36-date uh, British tour. Um, and that's going to be from middle of September to November. And then hopefully, um, with conversations going on with Primary Wave as well at the moment, um, I'll be coming to America next year. Well, I certainly look forward to seeing you. <laughs> Are you doing these live gigs to stay alive or because you want to do it? No, I'm doing it because I want to do it. And also, it keeps me young. You know, I've still got my hair. And, um, and I've still got my voice. And I think working really sort of is important to that. I mean, we've we've all gone through a complete change of life, haven't we, with the COVID times? Absolutely. And everything has changed. I mean, you know, every, every reliable, uh, uh, <laughs> let's say, um, everything that you could rely on is, is, was, was carted away, you know. So you had to kind of change a little bit. I mean, I've been doing live... Um, link ups with my band on Zoom just to keep, you know, us all kind of working together. I've been making internet songs and um, releasing a lot of stuff on Zoom. Oh, I'm sorry, on, on YouTube. Uh, I do a song called Why, How Did We Get Here? All About the Pandemic, you know, because everybody's trying to blame everybody else. You can see that one if you like. Um, it's on YouTube. And then I did a song for Melbourne, uh, because when that city did the hardest lockdown that anybody had known, um, you know, it was kind of completely decimated. And, uh, and Melbourne is my play town. I live in near Sydney, but Melbourne is the, the place where all the gigs are. And uh, so I was kind of like writing a sympathetic song there, you know, almost a rap oh, that was actually. And now I'm just writing a song at the moment for the Ukraine, um, which is basically on the angle of what are we going to do with all the refugees, which is an important question. So it's done like um, footsteps, like a walk. It's called Take a Walk With Me. So you take somebody through a song, which is, uh, you know, a very classic kind of um, styled song, um, and you're inviting someone to leave the city that's falling apart below them and saying you're always going to look after them, never let them down. And I don't know where to place the song, but I'll probably just make a YouTube of it and put it out there and be nice if someone from UNICEF or someone picked it up and used it, but we'll see. I mean, I work in a vacuum, Bob. I'm a very unusual guy. I work, I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm like Van Gogh. I I, I, I work on this stuff. I mean, I, I actually hope that my legacy is bigger when I'm dead than it is when I'm alive. Well, you're very optimistic. You're still working. <laughs> we didn't plumb a lot of topics like your relationships with all of these musicians and stars. Yeah. But I admire your optimism and the fact that you still, you know, especially in light of the story you've told about when you leased the big space and then it devastated you and you had a nervous breakdown. Have you ever been close to that feeling again? Or was that one and done? Oh, 
I don't know if you've heard of a show called Big Brother. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely awful. I, I, after ch- chasing a record deal um, around about 2005 or six, I, um, I was invited to go on Big Brother in England, Celebrity Big Brother. And I went on there and they, I'd just left England at the time. And I think I'd said some things about leaving England. So glad to get out of here. So happy to go to Australia. And they really seized on all of that and gave me a, a rotten hard time. And I ended up breaking out of there because I experienced incredible claustrophobia. And the fact that when you go in there, they take your watch away from you. You know, they take your, 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 they don't give you any pens to write down with anything with. I was suddenly in a creative vacuum, and I can't honestly say that many of my fellow contestants were the most inspiring people to be with as well. So they just gave me a hard time. So I did half the show in mime, which I thought was quite fun to do. So I was just doing hand signals, you know. Uh, The rest of it I wrote in my breath on glass panes. Some of it I actually found a little piece of metal and revealed all the cameras to everybody by taking panels out. I went to war with the show, basically. And I found doing that, you know, I'm such a rebel. <laughs> I just, I, I can't do anything like anybody else does. I have to do it my own way. I'm born with this gene of having to invent myself and and do that. So I would actually say, I mean, my feeling is that I'm a true artist. And, you know, some people say that's very big-headed or something, you know, to say. But I know all the criteria that an artist needs to have. And it's not a reliance on corporates, companies, other people even. It's basically, it all comes from me. Everything I do is part of this vivid imagination that I was born with, that I've always had. I can dream songs into being. I can create things from a blank sheet of paper. Um, so I just have to follow that. And that's 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 my skill set, you know. My skill set is to trust myself, to listen to myself and to follow myself. And most of the people in my life now appreciate that and let me do it. And let me, let me uh, make a mistake if I make a mistake. Let me do something glorious if I do it glorious. But they know the only way to get something good out of me is to let me do it. I design my own show. Um, I I do everything. I'm an autobiographer. I'm writing my book completely by myself. Nobody's helping. I'm doing all the research by myself. It's been a monstrous task. And to find stuff that I didn't even know about is a revelation as well, you know. So... I don't know. I think I'm. I think probably when that book comes out and people hopefully get to read it, if I can find the right publisher, and maybe even we can make a biopic of it. I think I've got a hell of a story to tell. And the fact if I'm a little bit obscure and a little bit off the radar because of the May. I mean, I'm not. I'm not with Live Nation. I'm not with uh, Sony Records or anybody like that. You know. Um, I'm very much off the radar. Um, but if people want to discover me, they'll find something I think that is very different 
and very unique. Well, certainly your conversation with me today has been different, unique, and intriguing. <laughs> Leo, I want to thank you for taking all this time with me. Thank you, Bob. And um, I've always been a big admirer of you, and I love the I love the column and the, and the blog, and um, you're one of the good guys, so it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.